And with that brief introduction, let's find out what's on Kay's mind this morning. Good morning, Kay. Good morning, Bob. Hope your morning is off to a good start. It is. It's great. Good. Wonderful. Um, I have a tomato question. I know you've probably answered it a hundred times. I just have tomatoes in big pots. Okay. And I've got like a one Juliet, a Sun Gold, a sweet tomato, a celebrity, and a Cherokee purple. Sounds like a pretty good assortment. Do I need to do anything with those? Like, I've heard some people say you're supposed to top them or cut them way back, or I've not done anything with with them as far as trimming them. And you don't need to. Uh, how do the tomatoes look? I mean, everything looks a little tired this time of year, but how is the new growth coming out? Those are all indeterminate varieties. Well, celebrities, semi-determinate, but um, uh, is, does growth look good on them? Do they look like healthy it's plants? Very, mm, yes, and at the top, uh, they're they're stretching in a way up, and there are blooms up there. Sure. Well, it's, you know, you do not need to cut them back. If you want to, you can, but it's just going to delay the further production of tomatoes, you know, on things like Juliet and Sun Gold. Mine kind of go up to the top of the six-foot cage, and then they start falling over and grow down, and frequently by the time freezing weather gets here, they've taken root in the soil down at the base of the cages. So they will do that on their own if you want to cut the plants back a little bit you can certainly root the tops and replant those so you have fresh plants coming on for the fall because um, you know these tomatoes aren't grafted so you can take a cutting and you're getting the exactly the same genetics as were in the original plant but do i do it no i've got too much else to do and too many other things to do in the garden the things that i think are very important on on vegetable gardening especially on tomatoes and peppers at this time of the year and eggplant my eggplant's still hanging in there my okra's producing like mad but i do recommend that you if you're not already doing so spray about every two weeks with liquid seaweed because this number one is going to stop spider mites which like to come in toward the end of the season and it's going to make those plants more cold hardy and typically here in this part of Texas, I've seen so many falls when we got an early freeze, cold enough to kill out most of the tomato plants, and then we went back to six weeks of warm weather. If you spray about every two weeks with liquid seaweed, you will add somewhere between 5 and 10 degrees to the cold hardiness of those plants. And many times, this is what it takes them to get through the first freeze first round of frost or freezing weather and then you've got an extra six months of growing time or six weeks rather of growing time in tomato production so i think the the seaweed spray every couple of weeks is a very good practice to be following plus just regular fertilizing whether you use uh has to grow or their new liquid fish or one of the asmoma liquids one of the fox farm liquids um i would be fertilizing as frequently as you can, every two or three weeks. I always say I'm going to feed every two weeks, and if I get around to it once a month, the plants are lucky. But uh, they've used up a lot of the nutrients that are in the soil, and if you want to really maintain good growth and production through the between now and the time that the really cold weather, if we have it, arrives, uh, feeding on a regular basis is pretty important. And now we're talking vegetables, but anybody listening out there with flowers like, uh, well, or colorful plants like caladiums and coleus and impatiens and vincas and things like that, yes, continued feeding is critically important there to keep them going. But uh, if you really want your tomatoes and peppers and things like that to keep going, uh, don't neglect them as far as giving them a little nutrition. 
I still have some John's recipes, so I've been doing that every couple of weeks. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's interesting that you should say that because John's special recipe uh, was always a great liquid fertilizer, and of course, with Ladybug going away, there's no more John's special recipe out there. But this new product that Medina is producing. And I don't think I'm well. I don't really care if I'm speaking out of turn or not. But I'll say it anyway. It is uh, their liquid fish uh, formulation. It's very, very similar to John's special mm-hmm. recipe. And since Stuart was the one that was bottling John's special recipe, I think he learned a lot from what John Dromgoul was doing in that. So when you use up your John's special recipe, if that's a formulation that you really like. I think the closest thing you're going to find to it on the market is the new Medina liquid fish product, which I like very much. It's, uh, uh, I rotate it. I alternate it with Hasgro and, you know, some other good liquids. But, uh, if you really like John's, uh, special recipe fertilizer from Ladybug, you're really going to like the new liquid fish recipe from Medina because they have a lot in common. Stewart's even added a couple of things and, Legally, I'm not supposed to talk about anything that's not on the label, but since it costs them money every time they add anything to the label, I'll just tell you that on all the Medina products, they add some different beneficial things um, uh, without putting them on the label. So I think it may even be a little bit better than John's Special Recipe was, you know, when, when he first came out with it, what, 15, 20 years ago. Oh, great. Well, that's good to know. I've got one more gallon to open, and then I'll be through. <laughs> well, if you garden like I do, a gallon doesn't go very far, so just I be know. aware when, when you run out of that gallon, you can go buy a gallon of the new Medina product, and you'll have a very similar product. I spray every couple of weeks or so with the liquid seaweed. I put in a little bit of Super Thrive mm-hmm. and a little bit of molasses. Is that okay? Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, you're just pushing it closer to, you know, what Howard Garrett calls Garrett juice. And if you wanted to add a little apple cider vinegar, if you wanted to add a little bit of, uh, you know, some of the other things that we sometimes include, uh, those all just make it better. But uh, I like uh, I like adding something like the Super Thrive. And it's just you're just creating your own unique combination. And, you know, in nature, the plant never knows what Mother Nature is going to give it. Never knows, you know, what <laughs> to to put it in the in the language of the kids. What kind of bird poop is going to fall on it, or you know, what's going to lie down and die next to it in the way of a bug or a mouse or whatever else. So plants in nature get highly varied diets, and I think mm. that's uh, I think when we do the same thing in our vegetable garden, we're increasing. Um, just just the diversity of nutrient material that's out there, which long-term is going to give you healthier plants and uh, probably better-tasting produce in the case of your vegetables. Okay. I was just wondering about topping them. I didn't know if that would make them uh, bush out more. Um, It'll make them know, bush make out them more, but you're, but you're going to give up, you know, probably four weeks of production while they come out and try oh, to start blooming okay, again. Okay. So. Me, I don't, well, I don't want to be without. <laughs> yeah, I, I just leave them alone. Now I'm, I'm fighting some uh, little four-legged furry-tailed tree rats. Uh, although the ones I'm fighting are the the ground variety of squirrels, and they've decided my garden is going to be their their buffet, and I'm out there with my live traps constantly trying to get them under control. So that's who I'm fighting for my fall crop. But uh, 
you know, by all means, let your plants grow and bloom and produce. And your your bigger ones, your Celebrity Cherokee Purple, are not going to produce much until the uh, night temperatures cool down a little bit so they can set more fruit. But your Juliet, your Sweet 100, your uh, uh, Sun Gold, those should just keep right on producing like mad for you. So the squirrels will eat tomatoes? Oh, absolutely. I've got them everywhere, and I haven't noticed it, gosh. Well, you must, uh, again, I'm fighting a different kind of squirrel. It's called the black mantle rock squirrel, and uh, I think they just have a little bit stronger taste for some of my vegetables than the old arboreal fox squirrels, probably what you have. But don't, uh, you know, once they discover them, it may turn into a bit of a fight. So uh, just be ready and don't do anything to encourage them coming into the garden. I won't, but... (laughs) <laughs> they're just everywhere it seems oh, tell like. me about it yep they had a very good spring high reproductive rate and we've got a lot of them out there so my personal hope is that the uh, hawks and owls eat well <laughs> <laughs> and okay. and the big old tree climbing rat snakes and things like that but many people aren't as excited about seeing a seven foot snake up in the tree as uh, they are seeing a big old hawk or an owl but Kay, you get out and have a wonderful weekend it's All always right. a pleasure visiting i will and thank you so much for the info you're certainly welcome thank you Bye. Mm-hmm. Bye. All right. It's going to be Clint and David and Mike. Good morning, Clint. Good morning. How you doing? I'm good. How about you this morning? Doing pretty good. Uh, a few quick questions for you. When do I pick a bosque pear? Do I want to wait for it to turn brown, or do I pick it before then? Let you it you want to wait for it to get a reddish blush to it. Uh, it may be September, could even be early October, the other way is to know when the birds and things start wanting to go after them. But uh, pears are one of those types of fruits that uh, does ripen after you pick it. So uh, if you pick it a little early, you're still going to have a chance to soften it a little bit in the windowsill or wherever. But uh, don't be in a big hurry. Uh, that one's going to have that kind of uh, oh amber-brown color to it. But you'll notice a little bit of a red blush on them as they you know, get more towards uh, what you would consider tree-ripened. Okay, because I already got the squirrels kind of going after them now, so I guess uh, i got to have a little discussion with them about that. Well, I, stuff, so. I, yeah, I, I would have a discussion <laughs> with them, but I'd, what I'd probably do is go ahead and pick a couple of them and sample them and see how hard they are, how close they are to their natural ripeness, and make your decision on whether to leave them or pick them because uh, those blasted little tree rats, uh, they don't eat the whole thing. They'll sit there and nibble on one uh, enough to ruin it, and then they'll go over and nibble on another one. And they that doesn't make me any friends among uh, those furry-tailed creatures. And that's what changed my wife. She loved watching them run around the yard too and stuff. But then when they seen her, what they were doing to her pears, that's kind of real quick. Yeah, that's kind of like Bambi in the landscape. <laughs> it's uh, it's much. real cute until they start eating all those things that you've worked very hard to produce. So yeah, I'm glad she's seen the light, so to speak. <laughs> I got a, a two different spots in my backyard where I keep replanting. I guess it's a live oak. I mean, a, a red oak or Monterey Oak, and but for some reason they don't really do anything. Uh, something bad about the spot? Should I maybe try the uh, Mexican Sycamore? Well, I if you've tried, you know, two or three different trees, and all of them are not doing well, then I 
I worry a little bit about something in the soil or something missing from the soil. Um, you know what we always say, be sure the hole drains well, be sure those trees have the root flares exposed. But um, uh, I, uh, beyond that, you can always, you know, Garrett juice will go a long way toward remediating any problems that are in the soil. I would very definitely uh, uh, treat that root ball with some of the powdered mycorrhizal fungus because that may be one of the things that's missing there. Um, if you have put it in a tree and it hasn't done anything and you've taken it out, uh, look very carefully to see if those roots are spreading. Try to try to make some analysis as to why the tree's not doing a whole lot. Uh, now, this time of year, you're not going to see growth from anything. Trees are, and most plants are just sitting there using all the energy they have just to stay alive in the heat. But come fall, and especially come spring, um, you should certainly see some good growth from any tree that's been in the ground for a little while. Mexican sycamore is an excellent tree, but I'm a little bit more concerned uh, because I you know you've been gardening a long time and Hopefully you're patient enough to realize that these things don't happen overnight. But given 18 months or so, you should start seeing some good growth on any of the trees you mentioned because they are well adapted here. Um, if not, you know, check the root flares, check for drainage, and be feeding on a regular basis. And uh, let's see how things do. If you want to add a sycamore to the mix, go right ahead. Be aware the Mexican sycamore takes a little bit more water uh, to grow well uh, than the other trees you mentioned, but so long as you can provide that, it's an outstanding tree. And how far on that sycamore do you need to be away from a septic tank? Um, I don't worry about it at all. I mean, my lateral lines run right underneath, you know, a huge mod of oak trees and other trees, and uh, I think, you know, I'd, I would be... I'd be 10, 15 feet away from it, but I'm not, you know, going to go halfway across the the property to get away from it. I don't think that's critical. Okay. On those trees, you know, they always get that Medina, you know, pretty regularly. I'm Uh kind of wondering. And then also it hits the ground from time to time and and the tree itself with that Medina Plus. And I don't know, it seems like these spots go nowhere fast. They seem to drain really well. Well, mulch them with a good, you know, uh, mulch with a lot of compost mixed into it. Um, I like, you know, putting down a dry fertilizer like the Medina Growing Green, but especially that first year of life, I'd be be following it up with some has to grow uh, for Medina products every, you know, every few weeks. And um, uh, the the first year or so, a tree's going to spend more time growing roots than it does growing tops. But you should see a substantial new burst of growth next spring on all those trees. Okay. I guess we'll wait till then. Now I got a curious thing coming out my ground. It kind of looks like a little bitty volcano shape with about a quarter size diameter hole, a perfect hole coming up out of that. What am I got growing? I mean, living in my ground. Um, this is a time of year that the cicadas start emerging. And they they leave a pretty good sized little hole when they come out. They uh, they they look like a beetle when they come out. They climb up a tree or a wall or something else, and they split that skin and come out with their wings and take off to you know make a lot of noise and be sure you don't get an afternoon nap in because it's so noisy. But if it's a big hole, that's almost certainly what you're seeing. Um, if it does, the dirt that's pushed out like look like little coffee grounds, little granules. 
No, like I said, it's a lot bigger. Uh, I've seen the remnants of those uh, cicadas when they climb up inside the house or whatever. Yeah. Uh, but this is a lot bigger. Like I said, the, the diamond as a whole is a big quarter size. Mm. And is there any depression in the ground, or does the hole just go straight in? No, no, no. It actually raises up uh-huh. about an inch, looking kind of like a mini volcano. Of the dirt that was excavated is actually pushed out. Um, you know, depression. It's, it's a it's a rise. It's I. It would be hard to say. I'm. You've got a lot of things that will dig, but not much of them make a perfect little volcano mound. Most common thing people see uh, that confuses them. Those are actually uh, earthworm castings that the earthworms put up. When the soil gets real moist, but our soil is sure not moist now, so um, I don't know. Put your game camera out there on it at night <laughs> and see what you find doing it. Um, I'm also seeing a lot of burrowing done by toads and things like that, but again, usually not in a perfect little volcano shape. A perfect little volcano shape is many times something pushing up from underneath rather than something digging down from above. Well, next time I'm in in the, in the shop there, I'll swing by with a picture of it. Yeah, I'll look forward to say. seeing it. Look forward to seeing it. Well, good day. I appreciate your time. Always a pleasure, Clint. Have a great weekend, and I'll move along. Talk to David. Good morning, David. Hello, David. Good morning, Bob. Good morning, sir. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. How about you? Oh, I'm I'm. I'm all right, I guess. I took that time off. <laughs> if if you're up and alive and moving, then everything's off to a good start. Hey, 500 milligrams. <laughs> I'm ready for the yes, sir. For the yarn, I guess. Listen, I have got a question about that. Uh, my dinama has green grow. Okay. I, I was going to get some uh, has to grow liquid, but I haven't gotten it. Can I keep using that uh, those granules? The granules, uh, that's a great question. The granules are packed with nutrient. They are as a good a dry fertilizer as I think you're going to find. But, mm-hmm. you know, like everything, it, a lot of the nutrients that are in there require some biological acti- activity to make those nutrients available to the plants. Your liquids, like your has to grow, are more what we would call bioavailable. They're going to get into the plant faster. They're going oh, yeah. to produce a quicker growth, although not as you know sustained over a long period of time. So both of them are excellent fertilizers, but the has to grow yeah. is going to give you the more immediate response. Quicker, quicker. Yeah. The growing green is going to give you the longer response. I do both. I put down the growing green, and then when I have the time to do it, I follow it up with liquid yeah, has to grow. That's and, what I did last year, but yeah. right now, so I'm, I guess it will get me a gift. You're doing it right. Yes, sir. That's about it for me now. Well, then you get out and have a good weekend, and I'll get Mike in here before the uh, news break. I appreciate it, David. Thank you, sir. Bye-bye. Okay. Goodbye. Let me do this. Let me push that button, and then let me bring... Okay. Now we should be able to get Mike. Good morning, Mike. Good morning, Bob. I just got one quickie. Okay. Uh, What about fall potatoes? Have you ever... Have you had any luck in fall potatoes? Yes and no. Um, Of course, it all depends on how quickly it gets cold and how cold it gets. And crazy weather this year, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know of anyone who has the certified seed potatoes in the fall. I mean, all the 
the big growers that produce the seed potatoes do it all in the spring. So this time of year, you're going to have to go to natural grocers or um, somewhere that has good potatoes with live eyes to get your start. Well, see, I've got, I've still got some left from spring. Oh, okay. I, I boxed, I boxed them in uh, some peat moss. Sure. And uh, and kept them since spring, and so. Some of them are getting rotten, but, uh, you know, uh, so I thought, well, I'm just going to give it a shot and see what I happens. would say you've got very little to lose other than the time and effort of doing it, which isn't great. And um, it's a roll of the dice as to whether we're going to get real early cold. I have mm-hmm. made some little, just like a inverted U-shaped things with a half-inch galvanized pipe with two short legs and a long thing, and I can just push these down over the row, uh, and it's about two feet up in the air, and then I can take a piece of frost cloth and just stretch that over the top like a pup tent, and that gets me through, you know, the first two or three frosts. So if you're able to do that, uh, there's a lot of people produce very good potatoes in the fall, and then there's that year when we get 22 degrees at the end of October and everything freezes, but... Uh, gardening is already a gamble with worse odds. <laughs> and so yeah. I, I would say go for it. Okay. Uh, what What is the soil temperature now? Do you know by any chance? You know, I haven't checked it recently. My guess is probably in the low 80s. So I guess, uh, like right now, uh, oh, I don't know, I put them six inches in the ground, I guess, or so, something like that. I wouldn't so, I wouldn't go that deep. I'd plant them maybe three inches down, and I'd do it as soon as you can. Three. Yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Well, that's good. Okay. Well, that's, that's about all I had this morning. Then you go have a good morning. But let's just go back to these phone lines. Good morning, Martha. Good morning, and it's a beautiful morning at the moment. It's cool outside and great. <laughs> enjoy it while it lasts i feel i really well i can't say i feel sorry for them but uh people who don't get up and enjoy the you know the sunrise really are missing out on the nicest part of the day this time of year and the mosquitoes haven't found me (laughs) well that's a good thing too the um grasshoppers i did not get mellow out in the spring when i should have Mm -hmm. but i noticed that there's a new crop of the little bitty tiny grasshoppers coming on. Do you think it would be effective to put some out now? Absolutely. Absolutely. Because that's just the age at which the NOLO really affects them. Now, as I think you know, but for the benefit of everybody else, um, uh, the NOLO doesn't just outright kill the little grasshoppers. It sickens Mm -hmm. them, and grasshoppers are cannibalistic. The bigger grasshopper sits there and says, oh, look at that one that can't get away from me, and hops on and eats the young grasshopper, and that's how it picks up the bacteria, the Nosema locustri, which, of course, is what NOLO is short for. So, yes, it would very definitely cut down on your fall grasshopper problems, and I think it's important to do because with the hotter, drier weather, Things uh-huh. are certainly not growing the way they were back in, you know, May and June. So any damage the grasshoppers do is going to be much more visible, and the plants are going to be much slower to recover from it. So uh, long answer to short question, yes. As a matter of fact, uh, I have half a package of NOLO saved over from the first batch that went out, and uh, it's going into my garden in the next day or two. Okay, I'm um- have katydids and those red-eyed monsters, will it have any effect on them? Yes, it will. 
Yes, it will. Oh, that's wonderful. Last question. Uh, Am I wasting my time if I put in calendula seeds now? I have never had real good luck direct seeding calendulas. Um, I would say it would be a fine time to uh, start some seed. And, you know, you don't have to have fancy seed trays, although most nurseries, certainly we give away anything that we have as far as the little plug trays and things like that. But um, you can always take the old styrofoam-like egg carton, just cut the top off and punch a hole in the bottom. But I, I think you'll be a lot more successful starting your seed in something like that and then transplanting little plants out as opposed to just direct seeding in the garden. But, no, I think this is a fine time to do it. Do some broccoli while you're at it. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I can find lots good. of seeds for you to plant. But calendulas, I love calendulas. And um, we do have relatively mild winters. Again, kind of all bets are off on this one. As weird as the weather has been so far this year, nothing will surprise me. We could have a winter without a single freeze, or we could have some, you know, really frigid days ahead. And uh, your calendula is going to take it down into the middle 20s without any damage. But I've seen winters when they when they didn't do so well. But, you know, like I was saying earlier, it's agriculture is just legalized gambling with worse odds. <laughs> For sure. Oh, thank you very much, and God bless. Yeah, you have a wonderful day. I appreciate it and wish you the same, and uh, I know we'll talk again soon. Uh, Let me talk to Al next, and then we'll talk to Rosa. Good morning, Al. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. Thank you, Robbie. The uh, early morning is by far the best time of the whole day. <laughs> I guess I guess we're lucky that not everybody knows that or it'd be a lot more crowded out there on the roads and everywhere else. Good point. A few months ago, I was talking to you about a real bad ball moss that I have, which I'd like to kill. Right. And you said <clears throat> baking soda would do that. Right. But you recommended that I use potassium bicarbonate instead of sodium bicarbonate. Is that if, correct? If you're able to do that, yes. And the reason is that, you know, potassium isn't. It takes a lot of potassium to damage a plant. I'm not going to say that potassium is harmless because really high potassium levels can cause some aberrant growth. But sodium is much harder on plants uh, than potassium is. And, of course, baking soda is just sodium bicarbonate instead of potassium bicarbonate. Now, if you're just going to make one or two sprayings, no big deal. But over time, um, or if you just want to avoid increasing the sodium in your soil, then potassium bicarbonate's a good choice. Now, this is not the time of year I will be spraying uh, to reduce the ball moss or to kill it because the ball moss needs to be an active growth. So you want to wait until we have a, a bit of a rainy spell because, you know, spraying right now is going to do absolutely nothing, just like, you know, spraying with most weed killers and things. And that's why I've got an issue right now with Kendall County that I need to talk to Ricky Pfeiffer about next week because they're out doing some weed spraying, and you're just wasting your time uh, unless the area is well irrigated because the plants are just in kind of a, a shutdown mode where nothing's going to have much impact on them. And the ball moss is the same way. It's just sitting there, and, I mean, how would you know the difference between uh, live or actively growing ball moss and and semi-dormant ball moss well the new growth is very soft is very succulent it'll be a slightly lighter gray in color when you're seeing that 
uh, your bicarbonates, either sodium or potassium, will be much more effective in killing it. But right now, you'd just be wasting your, your time and money to spray. Okay, how, how strong a mix should I make? Fairly strong with either one. I'd be putting maybe, uh, well, I'd be I'd be putting it in to the point of making a supersaturated solution until no more will dissolve. And that's going to be probably about a quarter of a cup per gallon of water. Okay. Do you know any good sources of the potassium bicarbonate? The only, the, oh, I'm sorry. I went to the uh, scientific essay and yeah. they had it, but it's extremely expensive and it's more of a laboratory grade. Yeah. And uh, we're talking about analytical scientific, I presume. Yeah, that's correct. They're pretty much the only game in town. You may be able to go online and find it a little bit cheaper. You might call, um, and, and, you know, part of me hates bothering them, but uh, people like Stuart Frankie over at Medina, just such a nice guy and so helpful. Uh, Pick up the phone and call Stuart, and what I do in in a case like this is I say, Stuart, you don't have to call me back. But text me if you know anybody that any other source that I might have. And uh, I'd, I'd call somebody like Stuart Frankie. I might uh, uh, call uh, Rodriguez Butcher Supply. They carry a lot of different uh, products that are used for preserving meat, making sausages and uh, cured meats and things like that. And they are super nice people. And by the way, if you ever need if you ever want really quality knives or meat grinders or anything like that, put, put Rodriguez Butcher Supply at the top of your list. But, uh, you know, call over there and ask them. Those would be two people that, while they're probably not going to have it themselves, would happily share their knowledge if they know a, a, a more, uh, and I don't want to say more reasonable, because analytical scientific is very reasonable on their prices, but as you said, it's reagent grade. It's what they're right. selling to the high school chemistry right. lab, and you don't need to be you don't need to be quite that pure. But yeah, call start with Rodriguez Butcher Supply in Medina, and uh, if anybody knows a uh, lower price source for a slightly lower grade material, those are the two individuals where I would start. Okay, Bob. Thank you. As usual, you are a super assist, and we really, really appreciate it. Well, it is my great pleasure. I feel like I get to talk to the nicest gardeners in Texas and occasionally people from further away, Al. So uh, you get out and have a great weekend, and I know we'll talk again. Thanks, Bob. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Yeah, let's go ahead and talk to Rosa rather than make her wait through a commercial break. Good morning, Rosa. Oh, good morning. Good morning. I have two questions. One, we have a great big cottonwood tree. It's about eight years old. Okay. And it's losing all its leaves, and it kind of looks like the pear tree when it gets all that uh, dead branches in it. Uh-huh. I don't remember the disease in it. Yep. But it kind of looks like that. What could that be? Oh, unfortunately, the news is not good. It's one of two things. It has either gotten a little too dry, which is what I hope it is. Try really saturating it, putting some uh, garret juice would be a good thing to mix with the water to really water that tree. Uh, unfortunately, the reason that I do not recommend cottonwoods is because they are susceptible to something called cottony root rot. And oh. I, I remember my business partner many years ago when she lived in San Antonio 
They planted one by the corner of their garage out in Green Spring Valley. That tree grew to be 15, 18 feet tall in like three years, and then it folded up and died overnight. It literally, in a week's time, um, but it didn't didn't drop the leaves. The leaves just sort of went droopy-looking, and then the whole tree just folded up and died. I'm hoping since your tree is dropping the leaves, it's more of a water issue from which it can recover. But I have to tell you, with cottonwoods, I always worry about cottony root rot because it's it's the reason you don't see more big cottonwoods in the area. Um, and so it's, it's not a tree I recommend. But since you have a nice tree, try the Garrett juice. Try good thorough watering, maybe a little bit of Super Thrive out there to stimulate any roots that have been damaged by getting too dry. But my, my hope is just that it either has not gotten watered often enough, or more likely, it hasn't gotten watered deeply enough. Um, you need to turn that hose on slowly, lay it at the base of the tree, and let it run for two or three hours uh, to really soak a tree, to really soak the, the roots of a tree that size. Well, you know, uh, the carpet grass around it is, is green, mm-hmm. and so I thought it had enough water, but maybe just enough water for the grass. Well, the yeah, tree, the, that carpet grass has roots two or three inches deep. Uh, that cottonwood has roots two or three feet deep. Oh. So, And that's the problem with... Uh, you know, modern sprinkler systems, people rely on them to water shrubs, where sprinkler systems are meant to water grass, and you have to let them run for hours to really get the water down deeply enough into the soil. Now, through the spring and early summer months, wasn't an issue because we're getting regular soaking, deep soaking rains, but we haven't had a decent rain now in six or eight weeks, and uh, all your plants are a little thirsty and your cottonwoods and poplars and things like that are desperately thirsty so uh yeah we need to we need to you know keep water in the grass to keep it looking nice but we need a much a much more water than that to keep your tree happy okay well i hate that news but let me go on to the next one okay um how about carpet grass? I'm out there watering, and all of a sudden, I'll get full of ants, and I do not see the little pile of dirt so I can put something on it. Right. What you can do is get some of this bait, which is called come and get it, um, uh-huh. and just scatter it around. That one little, I think it's a one-pound package it comes in, that'll do uh-huh. a huge area, like quarter of an acre or something like that. And uh, the ants are just out foraging when they start building that mound, it's usually when they're going into their reproductive mode and producing new queens and drones and things like that. And in their little ant brain, something is telling them, hey, this is not a good time for reproduction. Just get out there and do your normal you know, foraging thing oh, and bite anybody uh-huh. that comes along. So yes. that's why the ants are active now, but you're not seeing the mounds. But that's what Come and Get It was basically made for, is to be a bait. You can scatter it out where the worker ants, which are the ones that are going after you, they will pick it up, mm-hmm. take it back, feed it to the queen, and as the saying goes, everybody dies, which is good in oh. the case of fire ants. So uh, do sure. keep your, you know, if you don't use all your come and get it at one time, which you probably won't, do keep it uh-huh. in a cool place because if it gets super hot, it gets kind of rancid. I would, um, you know, I'd, like I say, mm-hmm. I'd, I'd, that's what I would get. Scatter it out either early in the morning or late in the evening when the ants are foraging actively. And give it three or four days, and I think you'll be pretty much ant-free. Well, how about the beneficial nematodes? They don't get rid of ants? Oh, they will. They will, but it's going to be much slower. 
Um, oh, you oh, know what? Uh, whether you see the mound or not, a a fire ant mm-hmm. mound can have a million or more ants in it. And oh. when you're putting out, you know, a million nematodes, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's going to oh, take okay. them a while to reproduce and get their numbers up. It's, uh, you know, it's like sending out a platoon of soldiers to take on an army of invaders. And, oh, uh, okay. yeah, the beneficial nematodes will eventually get them. But my suspicion mm-hmm. is Rosa wants them dead today. She doesn't want to, doesn't wait yes. for the special yes. forces to, to do their job. Oh, it's terrible to be standing there and all of a sudden up come these ants from and, everywhere. It seems. <laughs> and I'll oh. bet you do about the same dance I do when I suddenly yes. discover what I'm into. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And Absolutely. then it's rub the comfrey on so it doesn't blister and all those things. But no, get, get a package, just, you know, one bag of come and get it. It's almost mm-hmm. certainly going to free your yard of ants. Remember that they, they, they're not real active at producing new colonies, but any time of year, you, it's always possible you'll have a queen fly in and set up housekeeping. So the nice thing about nematodes is they will probably keep you free of them for um, for several months. Uh, the come and get it has a shorter life, but it does knock them out to where you can get out and enjoy your yard once again. Oh, wonderful. Just one more thing. How about comfrey? I cannot seem to get that comfrey to do well for me. Start it in a semi-shaded area. Maybe wait till it cools off just a little bit, but water, water, water to get it going. Once it's established, um, you know, just occasional water, but I think it, it takes a lot of water to get it established. So I might hold off until it cools off just a little bit, put it in the shade rather than in the blazing sun, and then later you can transplant part of it into a sunny area if you want to. But uh, it's, it's a little tough to get started, but once it's started, you'll have it forever. Oh, wonderful. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate all the good advice you give. Always a pleasure. Thank you for the call this morning. Good morning, Joe. Good morning, Bob. Morning, you know, sir. You're multi talented. You can wake me up on Saturday mornings when I'm not <laughs> quite ready to get up. Well, I, I like the fact that people tell me I wake up with the finest women in San Antonio every Saturday and Sunday morning. So lucky me, lucky you. <laughs> Aren't you lucky? Hey, uh, real quick, it's more informational than anything. Uh, the cornmeal around yes. the oak trees, right. I had a, uh, well, younger than the others. It's probably a 30-year-old tree, but uh, I had some yellowing in veins coming up on this one in particular. Right. I have, there's oak wilt in the area. It's up here in Bandera, and literally, you know, half a 50-pound bag around it, uh, about four feet around. Kept right. wet for several days, and the new growth, no yellowing veins. So Very good, uh, especially in August, because... This is the time of year that oak wilt symptoms frequently show up. So I'm very glad to hear that. The one thing I will tell you, um, especially if you are treating preventatively, especially on a larger area, which is certainly a good idea if you have oak wilt around you, but we're finding that we get about the same results if we put a couple of cups of cornmeal in a five-gallon bucket of water and pour that around, let it sit uh, and ferment, so to speak, overnight, and then pour that, you know, two or three five-gallon buckets full, and that'll stretch your your 50-pound bag of cornmeal to where you can treat about 10 times as many trees with the same amount of cornmeal. So just put that in the back of your mind. I mean, 50 pounds cornmeal is not very expensive, but a lot of my friends and ranchers out there have much larger 
acreage to do, and uh, plus they don't want to have the deer and the birds and everything else, and they're trying to lick it off the ground before it even gets started. But we're, we're finding that the liquid soak uh, is also very effective. I'm going to be talking with Howard Garrett about this later in the show, and it's turning out to be effective against some other very serious diseases uh, as well as oak wilt. So uh, bottom line, I'm really glad that it's doing for you what it needs to do. Well, I've uh, I've heard you say that recently, and I've and I've you know put it in my mind to do so because I was <laughs> going to do a follow up treatment, and I was wondering would it be of any value to uh, spray the uh, the corn so? Uh, and by the way, I was using corn chops. I mean, okay, I yeah, that's fine. The way I could, yeah. And I was wondering would it do any value to spray up in the trees? Not really, uh, not really, because okay, right. so the way the the way the yeah the way the oak wilt fungus works, it plugs up the vessels in the tree that conduct the water it's not something okay. that works from the top down the disease attacks from the ground up so uh that's the way i think you'll be most effective in in addressing it but i do recommend following up about every six months just uh here you've done it uh you know midsummer plan on doing it again midwinter and anywhere you're concerned if you have healthy oak trees that are kind of up toward that oak wilt front from your neighbors, go ahead and treat those trees before you see any symptoms. Makes sense to me. Oh, and the real tidbit I wanted to share with you, I was at the uh, Ag Pro. We've got a new Ag Pro John Deere uh, place up here in Bandera. Right. On their, on their counter was the fresh cab. I don't know if they ordered online and just offered it, you know, it's about $15, oh. $15 a, a, a package. But I did read on there that it's not to be used Basically, it almost sounds like in in your indoor living area is it was be kept away from food. Yeah, and I was kind of surprised to see that disclaimer. I don't know what the reason was. I didn't go into detail because I didn't figure they would know much more than I would. I <laughs> You're right you. about that. You know, but, uh, it's on the counter, and, and so we in Bandera we have access. Well, I'm glad to hear it. I've got it. I've got to pick up a mower part from the Ag Pro. Uh, uh, in Bernie this Bernie. next week, and I will sure check it out there. Read the ingredients on the label. I can't see anything in there that would give me any concern whatsoever. And so my suspicion is is more of a, we all know CYA. what CYA stands for. Yeah. <laughs> I suspect that yeah. has a lot to do with it. But uh, um, it uh, I'd have to say where I use it, but I actually use it in my pantry. But uh, I use it more in some of the rooms and storage areas that i have in my barn so i can't say i've really used it around a lot of food but always check the label always analyze for yourself what's in there and everything i see in there is just you know natural um fur and balsam and things like that so uh, i'm i'm not going to recommend that you go against the label because that would not be legal for me to do but I, i just say you've got a brain use it so few people have forgotten how well, you know, so they, they write that they write that on about eighth grade level, so I have to take a little more reading lessons <laughs> to understand it. But that's beside the point. Enjoy your show, Bob. Thank you very much for everything you do for us. Yeah, uh, my pleasure, Joe. If you have a good day up in Bandera area, and we'll talk again. Uh, let me let me go ahead and talk to Kim. Good morning, Kim. Good morning. Good morning. I apologize if you answered this. I I listen online, and sometimes my phone just stops. Well, if I've answered it before, I probably need to answer it again. So go right ahead. 
Well, when I got back on, you were talking about trees and watering, and then that reminded me that I had a question. I was listening last week, and you started talking about watering and watering at the base of the trunk, and everything I've ever heard was water in the drip line, and you were talking as though this is something new that now the arborists have changed their mind, and I went online, and I was looking for information, and so can you... Tell me something about this. Well, you know, I think watering, obviously, throughout the drip zone is what Mother Nature does throughout the whole root area of the tree. But um, I'm first to admit there are a lot of people a lot smarter than me out there. So I turn to not the average arborist, but the best of the best for further information. And David Vaughn, who consults nowadays, he's retired from Metter Tree Care and (laughs) He said when he got as old as he was, he didn't have to work quite that hard. But he's the guy that teaches the courses that other arborists have to take to become certified. So he's sort of one of my go-to guys for information. And he tells me that they are finding that the trees take up uh, the majority, at least, of the beneficial things we're trying to get into the tree. They take it up within 10 feet of the trunk, that that's where the majority of the uptake occurs. Now, I'm sure that it is good to have plenty of watering out around the drip line of the tree, but, um, you know, we don't always have time, we don't always have water uh, to do the same thing Mother Nature would do, and it just came as a surprise to me because I, like you, I grew up learning, oh, everything the tree does is out around the drip line, and that apparently is not the case as far as water uptake, so What I'm going to do is water a little more lightly out in the drip area, and I'm going to water more heavily up close to the trunk. I'm not going to totally stop watering the drip line, but I'm going to increase my watering up closer to the trunk of the tree. Interesting, because tomorrow's my watering day, and Uh I water in my neighbor's yard because that's where the drip line of the tree is. Well, water lightly there, but then... uh, uh, I mean, I, you can let the sprinklers water there, but, you know, maybe turn the hose on and move it around a little bit closer to the trunk and uh, just kind of get the best of both worlds that way. That's just really fascinating. I, it was the first I'd heard of it. I was so glad I happened to be listening that morning, and um, I just was like, wow, I just well, hadn't heard it. I, wasn't, I was glad I was listening when David presented this at a seminar. I don't even remember exactly where or what we were probably talking about, the cornmeal for oak wilt treatment, but uh, uh, it sure got my attention. And it's amazing what they can do now What uh, the, with the scientific equipment that is out there. They can actually tell you how quickly... The water moves up into the tree and lots of things that back in my old days of plant physiology was just dreaming and wishing it that we had a way to do that. And uh, there's some incredible tools out there. And I think they're making a lot of discoveries about the physiology of trees thanks to some of the new uh, technology we have to analyze things. So it's uh, never think you know it all. You know, keep learning every day if you want to stay current, so to speak. So is uh, David Vaughn a consulting arborist yes. in the San Antonio area? Yeah, he's here in San Antonio area, and uh, in my opinion, he's the best of the best. Um, 
I think you can probably, he, he does have a web page, I believe, just as David Vaughn Arborist, but uh, Google that name and uh, his phone, you can get his phone number, or you can still call Letter Tree Care. They still refer a lot of people to him uh, for consulting work, and then he tells them what needs to be done, if anything, and probably makes some suggestions as who can do the best uh, job. But, hey, if you just want to spend an hour learning about your trees, I think it's time and money well spent. Uh, uh, what call what tree company? Uh, he he worked for many years for Etter E T T E R, Etter Tree Care, okay. and awesome. they are they are the best of the best in my opinion when it comes to arborists. They're three months behind right now. So David or Ed told me he said you don't really need to work at sending people our way right now because it's a long wait with all the storms and everything. But yeah. uh, David worked with them for years, and then when he he hit a certain. Uh, big number in the in the aging game he said uh i'm going to take it a little easier i'm going to spend more time fishing and less time uh you know up working physically on the trees but he's still the best consultant i know of and if you have serious issues or just want to learn more about he told me they're doing a lot of tree surveys they're doing a lot of things uh related to uh, arboriculture so i I still recommend it very highly well thank you for the information it's quite interesting I'm, i'm glad to know this well, I'm glad to be able to share it with you, and uh, you have a wonderful weekend, Kim. You, you too. Thank, Thank you, you so much. Bye. All right, back to gardening, and uh, don't doubt right this second. Every line's taken. We're going to talk to Betty, and then Carol, and then Faye, and then Mary. I guess it's a ladies' hour, and Betty's up first. Good morning, Betty. Good morning to you. Uh, I have a question, of course, about watering. Okay. It is so hot. Right. And it's my begonias. Um, I don't know how much to water them. Right now, I've been doing it like every two days, and I do have them mulched, and they are in pots. Uh-huh. So how often do I do that? And also, do I feed them once a week or what? And also, my elephant ear, I have one of them under a tree, and it gets, you know, wilt by late afternoon, but in the morning, it perks up. Sure. But my second one that I have, there's the leaves that aren't healthy looking they're they're sort of curling and then turning yellow and dropping so answers just to those <laughs> you you have a you raise a number of very good and very different issues plants in pots are always going to need to be watered more frequently than those that are in the ground but what i always tell people people that i think are listening carefully Uh, I always tell them there's no such thing as too much water, but there is too often. And what I mean by that is that when you water, you need to really flood, whether it's a pot or whether it's planted in the soil, you need to really water. There's no such thing as putting too much water on at one time, but then you hold off until the soil has dried to the proper point and throw away those blasted little moisture meters. They are totally worthless. Your your index finger is the best moisture meter out there. These little gadget ones that you buy, they actually measure the salt in the soil, the electroconductivity, as they say, which doesn't always correlate to the amount of water there. So I'm guessing on pots that every second, every third day is probably about right, but just stick your finger down there. When that soil feels good and dry on the surface, then it's time to water again. Now, what is happening with a lot of plants, including at least some of your elephant ears, is that plants frequently wilt from the heat, even if they're not dry. 
And that's why my rule is if it's droopy in the evening, don't worry about it. Uh, if it's droopy in the morning, it definitely needs a good thorough watering. And that goes for, you know, everything from vincas to elephant ears to um, zinnias to just about everything you have out growing out there. Now, the your, your elephant ear that is not doing as well, um, you need to check a couple of things. Did you plant it as a bulb or did you plant it as an up and growing plant? No, as a bulb, and I'm glad I got it the right way up. <laughs> <laughs> Amen to that. Upside, my first one was upside down. Anyway. And um, it probably is what we call the upright elephant ear, and you might want to rake the soil back from the base of it a little bit. Those things we actually plant with about half the bulb sticking up out of the ground and if they get buried too deeply in the pot or if they get too much mulch up around them, that's when I see the worst of the problem with the uh, outer leaves just kind of turning to mush and, and falling off. It's usually that the base of the plant is uh, staying a little too wet. Either the bulb was planted a little too deep or there's too much mulch piled up around them. You're not going to find a root flare like we talk about on trees, but I definitely, I definitely pull the soil or wash the soil back away from the base of that and also check for spider mites this is a time of year that uh elephant ears can be very susceptible to spider mite damage so do a little spraying with liquid seaweed every now and then and i think it will get better okay that's what I, and of course i feed both my begonias and my elephant ears with uh seaweed i yeah. find that the best one to do for my plant well it's a very good one but keep in mind too that when we talk about elephant ears uh, there are definitely two different kinds of the old-fashioned ones we call colocaceas, which are basically a round ball that should be buried into the ground with at least an inch of soil over the top of it. But what the the big emphasis among the growers now and what you're most likely to buy at the nursery is what we call the upright elephant ears that have a much more elongated bulb that needs to be planted with a substantial portion of the bulb up above the ground. So uh, in the future, if you're not sure, be oh. be sure and ask because uh, uh, you can't just say elephant ear and know what you're get, getting. You you don't have to remember alocasia and colocasia, but you do need to remember upright and spreading because they're both out there. They're both wonderful plants. The colocasias are definitely more cold hardy, but in all honesty, they're a lot more boring than some of the new alocasias, which uh, there's some interesting colors, some interesting leaf patterns. So you may just have two different types of elephant ears out there. Okay, well, my question then, because like I said, that's been a while since I planted that elephant ear. Do, do I dig down then on that one that's wilting? to see where that bulb is? No, I don't think I'd necessarily go quite that far, but I would just go pull, let's say, an inch or an inch and a half of soil. Just get in there with your little hand uh, trowel or hoe or whatever and just pull back soil about an inch, inch and a half down on uh, that up that part of it that is coming upright, and I think you'll see a big change in it, given a little time. It's not going to happen overnight, but I think you'll see as we move into fall it'll do much better. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to be doing much better in the fall. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thank you, Bob. Have a good day. You do the same, Betty. Thank Bye-bye. you. Bye. All right. Back to gardening and back to the phone lines. Carol is up first. Good morning, Carol. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, 
actually allergies. Oh, yeah, so, uh, they're more than usual this time of year. Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Um, I was wondering if you heard that they're having oak wilt in Cordelia Ranch. Cordillera? There is a little out there. I have not heard about any real big areas of oak wilt like we're seeing when you get over in Fair Oaks. There's some horrible areas, and, of course, you get out towards Sisterdale, um, bad, bad things. There's a little bit of oak wilt around, but I'm not aware of any major centers in Cordillera at this point. Okay. Uh, the arborist that you mentioned to that lady... Um do you have their phone number? Um, I tell you what, if you uh, give me a second here, I'll bet I can find it. I have gotten a little bit more proficient about bringing things up on the computer or on the phone, but uh, uh, David Vaughn's number um, is area code 210, and that is, and follow that is 788-4986. Okay. Two ten seven eight eight four nine eight six. You might go to his website and just Google David Vaughn V A U G H A N and uh, just see uh, what all he does. And uh, he he's a good guy and he he's very low key, but he uh, he's the smartest good. guy I know when it comes to trees. He Mark Peterson knows a lot about trees, but David Vaughn knows about the physiology of trees probably better than anybody else I know. All right, sir. And the last question was. Uh, where do you get come and get it? I um I can't seem to find it. Um, um most nurseries should have it on their shelves. We certainly keep it at Shades of Green, but I would expect you would find it at Phoenix and Rainbow Gardens. Now, I'm not one for shopping the box stores, uh the Home Depots and Walmarts and Lowe's. I wouldn't expect to find it there, but a real nursery um, I'm sure, I, like I say, I'm virtually sure you would find it at uh, Phoenix and Rainbow Gardens, and I know you find it at Shades of Green. Okay. Can I ask one more question? Of course. Um, I have a cactus out in front. It's a thornless uh, cactus. Uh-huh. And something is eating it, and when I say eating it, it's going at it pretty readily, and... I just never heard of rain uh, deer uh, getting at those. Oh, deer will and cattle are, are terrible about it. Uh, uh, but oh, they will. Yeah, the the deer are getting hungry, and uh, yes, and and you know you get out your binoculars and study deer, you'll see a lot of them with cactus spines uh, in their jaw and things like that. But uh, they certainly are uh, in West Texas. Uh, the they have something called a cotton cotton rat. Um, that will get up and eat. In fact, the cotton rats build just huge um, nest, as it were, uh, down at the base of my my years working in the wildlife management area out there. We we always knew where to go look for the rattlesnakes because they were always prowling around the cotton rat dwelling, so to speak. But out there, the rats eat a lot. But in the hill country in this area. Uh, it is definitely deer, and if you have cows, they'll eat them thorns and all. I don't know how they manage that, but uh, um, deer right now are very definitely going after the uh, the opuntias, especially the spineless ones. Okay. Do you know um, what's available out there to keep snakes 
um, around your uh, in-the-ground uh, in pools? Um, you know, the best snake repellents out there are based on cedar oil. Um, I'm not going to tell you they're 100% effective. Uh, I will tell you that 95% of the snakes are totally non-toxic and no problem to you. But spraying with cedar oil or using, there's a product out there called Cedar Repel that you can get as granules. Sprinkle some of that around as a mulch, and you will see fewer snakes. I won't tell you it's 100% effective, but using a cedar mulch is very repellent to most reptiles, including the snakes that uh, um, that we have uh, a lot of. Now, a lot of our most common snake out there, other than garter snakes, is probably going to be uh, the the Texas rat snake, which is an arboreal snake, you're probably as likely to see it up in a tree as you are on the ground. But if I were going to put out a product to try to keep snakes away, it would be something based on cedar oil. All right, sir. Okay, thank you very much. Well, you are certainly welcome. Your help. Always a pleasure. Thank you for the call this okay. morning. All right. <laughs> Goodbye. Bye now. Bye. All right, well, let's at least get started with Faye. If we run into the news, Faye, we'll hold you over and continue, and then we'll talk to Mary afterwards. Good morning, Faye. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning to you. I have a little list. have missed you the last couple of weeks, uh, so uh, I've got a little collection. All right, let's get started. (laughs) Uh, Saving seeds, when uh, what I'm looking to do is just try to save some of my own Mm-hmm. seeds and the uh, question is if the fruit has gotten pretty ripe uh, oh i've got a cantaloupe that's i didn't use and sure what about the seeds uh, are they good oh yeah absolutely in fact you yeah. know nature intended that the rotting cantaloupe provide some nutrient to the seedlings as they grew for you to save those seeds put them in a colander or something like that and wash all that jelly-like material off of them and just spread them out on parchment. I guess you could use wax paper. I use parchment, uh, but it's, it's, and allow them to dry and then put them in an envelope, put that envelope in a mason jar or something in the refrigerator. But no, that, uh, that partly spoiled fruit is how mother nature intended the seeds to get started. You just need to clean the seeds thoroughly before you store them. Oh, good. That was that was a major question because uh, they seem to be that way when I get to them. Uh, then uh, rats, uh, when they're active at night and they maybe get in the attic, is that rats probably versus squirrel? It may be both, and I'm not sure which one woke me up in the night, but I set a live trap outside the area before I left this morning, and uh, it could be one or both. I um, I kind of the the sound of the noise. I've had possums get into attics both, but uh, I'll probably put a rat trap or two up there in addition. But it, it could easily be squirrels, just just like it could uh, like it could rats. Just a little bit more in, in terms of black-eyed peas and southern peas. Can you uh, indicate to me which grow when? Well, I'm picking and shelling, and matter of fact, I froze a special batch of them for New Year's this past week. Um, I guess I planted mine about six weeks ago. You can still get another crop in. They're kind of like beans as long as the weather is warm. They don't grow quite as quickly in this heat because it takes so much energy for them just to stay alive. But uh, black eyes are what I would call a shell pea. In other words, we grow them like we would, um, um, you know, an English pea. I mean, we don't eat them with a pod on. The pod's too tough and stringy. 
uh, whereas uh, the snow peas and things like that are what we would call edible pod peas, and, you know, we eat those pod and all, but the the black eyes, uh, purple hulls, uh, southern cow peas, whatever name you want to call them, they're all just good uh, summertime shell peas to grow. Uh, you pick them when the seed pod, when that long bean-like structure first begins to yellow. If you do that, they're real easy to shell. If you wait later than that, they're going to be dry, and you're going to have to treat them as dry peas, which you soak before you cook. If you pick them too soon, that little pod doesn't unzip. It's a lot more work to get the peas out of it. So a lot to be said about growing black eyes and other southern peas is just knowing exactly when to harvest. And they don't have a long productive period, but uh, um, you'll be you'll be picking and shelling over about a six-week period. I'm planting uh, my black eyes this year were the California black eye, and they, they produced profusely for me this year. Well, uh, so we're good on down till it freezes, maybe? Well, look at the ripening dates. It'll say on the seed package whether they're 30 days, 45 days, 55 days. And just, you know, back it off from that. Figure where you are. You Probably you'll be a little bit later in getting the first frost than we are. But figure they need to go into the ground respectively, you know, 30, 45, 55 days in advance to have time to grow and mature. Okay, good. Well, that was my list, and thank you so much, Bob. Always always good to talk to you, Faye. Go out and do a rain dance. I imagine even you guys are getting a little dry by now uh, this time around. Well, actually, right where we are, we're still quite moist. (laughs) But it it dries out on the top. Oh, yeah. Well, if you have any surplus, you send it our way because we're very dry in the hill country. But Anyway, always good to talk to you, and I know we'll do it again soon. Um, next up is going to be Mary. Good morning, Mary. Good morning, Bob. How are you this morning? I'm good. How are you this fine day? I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Good. I have a question for you about our vegetable garden this go-round. Okay. Um, it was an okay producer this year, you know, besides the rain and all the issues that that created. We're thinking we have knobby nematodes. Root knot so nematodes? We have, yes. Okay. We have not pulled the cukes or part of the tomatoes to kind of investigate those root systems. But if we discover we have them, what would be your recommendation to get rid of them? Okay. That's a really good question. There are two ways to control root knot nematodes, which are one of the, there are over 500,000 different kinds of nematodes. And so, for a long time, people heard the word nematode and they thought bad. We have learned that the right. great majority of them are good, but root knot nematodes are one of the bad ones, and they can have a severe effect on squash, on beans, on tomatoes, peppers, and it just uh, because it just oh, distorts the root growth. It just overall reduces the growth of the plant. So. Two different ways we attack them. If we feel like we have a severe infestation in the winter months, you can plant what we call a trap crop. And the plant that is usually used is a strain of tall-growing ryegrass, which is called Elbon, E-L-B-O-N, Elbon rye, also known as cereal rye. And we plant that as the weather cools off, normally in October or so, and leave it in the garden over the winter months. And what happens with your... Elbon rye is the nematodes 
burrow into the roots, but then because of chemicals that are in the roots of the ryegrass, they can't reproduce and they can't get out. And this is why they're called a trap crop. They stay in the roots and they die in the roots. And um, for everyone that gets into the root system of the ryegrass, that's one less root knot nematode to cause problems um, with your plants next year. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to be totally nematode-free the first year, but people who experience a lot of root knot nematode problems uh, rotate things around their garden, but they always leave part of the garden growing with the trap crop through the winter months just to reduce the number of nematodes. The second thing that we organic gardeners do is we use a good living mulch on the surface of the soil, and living mulches actually produce a fungus which puts its, what we would consider its roots, its body, whatever you want to think of it as, but they're called hyphae. Uh, this grows down into the soil, and it actually traps, it forms, and I've seen the electron micrographs, they're just fascinating pictures. It forms little loops that look sort of like croquet wickets, and they are triggered when a root-feeding nematode, the root-feeding nematodes as well as root-not nematodes, both of them are destructive, and both of them, when they pass through one of these little loops that this, uh, that this fungus has formed, it suddenly fills with water, it expands, and it's like it lassos it and literally pinches it in half. It just constricts until it kills the nematode. So uh, an ongoing program of keeping a good living mulch at the base of your susceptible plants, especially your tomatoes and peppers and beans and things, will greatly reduce any, you know, through the summer months, that's what you do to reduce root knot nematode problems. And if the problem is really severe, then think about planting the trap crop over the winter months as well. Make sense? Okay. And yes. And so if we planted the Elbon rye, uh, would that be something we buy at Douglas King? Douglas King would have it. Uh, many nurseries carry it as well. I suspect that we will probably, you know, get a bigger package and maybe divide it into smaller packages. Uh, um, but I, I think Douglas King will sell it to you in fairly small quantities as well. Okay, so then in the springtime, when it's time to plant spring crops, you what can, do we do with the Elbon? You can either just cut it off at ground level and plant around it, or you can pull it up and throw it in the compost pile, whatever works for you. Okay, uh, living mulch. If we put that down, then when we get ready to plant, would we just rake it away from the the rows for the row crops or the uh, another areas for the tomatoes and squash? Another real good question. You would look at it and see how far decomposed it is. If it still looks like mulch, rake it back, plant, and then push it back over. If it's really breaking down to where it looks more like compost, just work it into the ground as you go and get some fresh to add after your plants are up and growing. Okay. Um, up here, a nurseryman had told my husband <laughs> um, that we could solarize the garden. You can. and That works, too. That works, too. Um, it's more work and more money. But, you know, if you – my problem is I don't want to give up, um, you know, the portion of my garden for six weeks. That And it takes a minimum of six to eight weeks uh, to effectively solarize. But 
uh, you know, July and August heat, that absolutely does work well. Now, here's the thing. You will get the root knot nematodes that are in the upper layer of the soil because obviously um, the heat is going to be highest right up toward the top, and the deeper you get down into the soil, the cooler it's going to become. So solarization will greatly will reduce the number of root knot nematodes you have, but you're never going to eliminate them because more than about an inch deep, the soil is not going to get hot enough uh, to really get rid of those guys, just like weed seeds. You're going to get everything that's up toward the surface, but if you really get down very deep, I mean, you can you can determine this uh, for yourself with a little soil probe thermometer and be real interesting to do. Go out and, you know, actually see what the soil temperature is an inch down, three inches down, five inches down, and you can actually do this while the black plastic's still on. You can just poke down through. You're not going to create any big problems with one tiny little, you know, eighth of an inch diameter hole in it. But uh, I think you're going to find that if you get down more than a couple of inches, the soil is not getting all that hot and probably not enough to totally eliminate the root knot nematodes. Okay. Um, back to the living mulch. Is that a stone and soil product? If you're buying it in living bulk, mulch. yeah, if you're buying it in bulk, okay. stone and soil, uh, Jeff would have it for you right over there at uh, on I-10. Pretty convenient. And about, yes, it is. And about how thick of a layer of the living mulch would we put down? I go for, depending on the crop, uh, one to two inches. And don't put it right up against okay. the stems of the plants, but out over the root zone. Because, um, and, and then leave it in place, of course, you know, and, until time to replant and things. Because your uh, beneficial fungi form uh, this mass. The actual bodies called the mycelium and then the hyphae extend further down into the soil. And those are the things that are going to be going after setting the traps for the nematodes, so to speak. Okay, so if we were to leave our garden idle during fall and winter, yeah. which I know it makes you makes you kind of cringe <laughs> that we would do that. <laughs> well, but, you know, you lead a very active lifestyle, as do I, and my garden is much smaller than usual this warm season because I was uh, spending a great deal of time getting a new greenhouse going, as you know, so uh, it'll yes. expand again this fall. But, no, just any anywhere that you are not, growing things to benefit uh, your family than, uh, you know, plant the cover crop or cover it up with mulch or both. Okay, that sounds wonderful. Thank you, sir. And you have a wonderful day up there. And um, let's see, what is it, next weekend we've got the Sister Dale Volunteer Fire Department coming up. We might just see you guys up I, there, I guess. I think so. I think you will. I believe so. <laughs> I think you will. <laughs> Very good. You guys have a wonderful day. Okay. Thanks, Mary. Thank you, sir. Certainly. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Uh, <laughs> the uh, uh, the uh, workshop that I was going to tell you about with the uh, um, it's actually com- combination of the Cibolo Conservancy with the Hill Country Alliance uh, that is coming up on Friday. Oh, let's see here. Hold on, just a second. Got it in front of me. Uh, it's going to be Friday, August 16th. It's the afternoon from 2 until 5. And if you are interested in learning more about conservation easements, which protect your land, you still own the land, you just uh, agree not to cut it up in little pieces. And in addition, you get a tremendous tax benefit on your personal income tax. We're not talking property taxes here. We're talking about things that can save you 
well, thousands and thousands of dollars in personal income tax. So if you'd like to learn about it, uh, you can go to the Hill Country Alliance's website and find the full information there. Or you can go to uh, Cibolo Conservancy, Google that, and we'll have all the information up there for you. I'll tell you more about the Volunteer Fire Department at the next break. Right now, back to the phone lines, and Chuck is up first. Good morning, Chuck. Morning. How are you doing today? I'm good, sir. How about yourself? Doing good, standing out in the front yard, hand-watering some grass. <laughs> <laughs> It'll take a while, but if you're going to be standing out in the yard, this is sure the time of day to do it. Exactly, yeah, a couple hours each. When I when I do it, it's a couple hours in the process. Yes, sir. Um, I've been meaning to call you, and every time I think about it, of course, it's not on Saturday. Um, several months ago, I noticed in my yard I had a pretty good spot of uh, Johnson grass and crabgrass. Uh-huh. I got out there with the Johnson grass and a few days on hands and knees and probably pulled up a good 95% of it. It's it's pretty well done. Crabgrass, though, uh, that's a little harder to pull. It and is. Some of it is in San Augustine and some of it is in Bermuda. Right. And I'm wondering, is there any kind of... Um, Thing that I can put down, you know, organic or something that would help other than get out there and just keep working myself and trying to get it up. Well, first of all, you did a lot more than you needed to do on the Johnson grass. If you want to get rid of Johnson grass, <laughs> you just mow it. Johnson grass has to grow tall to survive, and it might mean making an extra mowing, but at least you can do that standing up. And one season oh. of mowing uh, and like I say, if it's an active growth time, you may have to mow twice a week instead of once a week. But Johnson grass right. will flat die if you don't let it make a top. So it, this is not a one-time thing, but let me tell you what, its uh, I'd rather do things standing up than, uh, well, I agree <laughs> than down and pulling out of the ground. So next time you have Johnson yeah. grass problem, problem, just mow a little bit more and you'll totally control it. Crabgrass... That's where you get the seedling, right? Well, it, it'll do best, but... Bermuda grass and St. Augustine grass both are strong grasses. St. Augustine grass will choke out everything, including Bermuda grass. Bermuda grass will choke out everything except St. Augustine. So my plan is in the cooler months, I'm going to put some compost down. In the warmer months, I'm going to fertilize with a good organic fertilizer. I'm going to mow, and my grass is going to choke out the noxious stuff like the crabgrass. Now, um, early... Early in the spring, when the crabgrass first starts to try to get started, when your um, St. Augustine and Bermuda are both dormant, you can go in with a mixture of vinegar and orange oil, spray everything, and you'll kill all the dandelions, all the henbit, all the, uh, um, all the different little grasses that are trying to sprout up, and not hurt mm-hmm. your basic grass because it's dormant. But uh, when we get into this time of year, uh, it's too hot to put down compost, but I'm going to... I'm going to hit it with a little extra organic fertilizer. If I've got a weed problem, I'm going to be sure I put maybe half an inch of compost down in that area, you know, after the weather cools off a little bit, typically in about October. And I'm going to let the, uh, I'm going to let my grass choke out and take care of uh, the weedy grasses that are coming up because pulling it up is just, um, it's just <laughs> counterproductive. I mean, it's good exercise, I guess. I always tell myself yeah, it's good, good it's a good yoga stretch to bend over and as I, I try to do it from a standing position so I'm getting a good stretch on those back muscles but it's a lot more than you need to do I I would fertilize water and mow and uh, your grass once it gets really established it's gonna it's gonna crowd out all the weedy grasses 
Okay, now the oil, you talked about the orange oil and vinegar, that's that's when everything's dormant. No, well, let me back up and, and amplify on that a little bit. It makes what we call a non-selective herbicide. It kills everything. It, it works. It has the same effect, shall we say, as Roundup does, but without all the toxic chemicals and things. So right. if we just want to kill out everything in an area... Um, we just spray with that, and it kills back everything. Really tough stuff. You know, it may take two applications or even more, and it's not as effective in the super high heat as it, uh, you know, in drought as it is at other times. But we can use it selectively because the only thing it affects is the plants that are green. We can spray it on the trunk of a tree. doesn't do anything bad. We can spray it on our Bermuda when it's brown. If we have a winter cold enough to brown out St. Augustine, which is about half the time, then you can safely go in and spray without affecting either of those grasses, and yet you'll totally wipe out all of that little green stuff that tries to sprout up in February and early March, like your crabgrass, like your dandelions, like your henbit, like all those things that are sprouting and trying to come up. Uh, just one spraying, and you've killed all them down without uh, doing anything uh, harmful to your uh, basic grasses. Okay, now on the crabgrass, obviously I'm not mowing once a week or more than that, but usually like once every two, which I need to do more. But I've noticed the crabgrass, when it grows tall enough, you get those stems which looks like seedling right. on them. Is that what that is? Is that a seedling of some sort? It's a seed head. It's producing seed. seed head. And the blasted Good. stuff, you know, when you mow off all the tall stuff, it starts putting out the same thing laterally. And uh, exactly. blasted sticker birds are the same way. You know, you mow off everything that's tall, so they just put them out right there at ground level. And that's why, you know, your your best defense is a good offense. Get your grass healthy enough that it is going to work at choking them out. And then with somewhat regular mowing, you'll certainly reduce the seed load that you're going to have from new seed produced. But uh, it's got to be a twofold thing. We've got to keep the weeds right. mowed down to where our basic turf grass does well. And then we've got to strengthen our turf grass so that uh, it, you know, does its part. Now, spring and fall and or fall, if you put down that thin layer of compost, it has like a natural pre-emergent herbicide. I saw this most effectively where I had a horrible grasper infestation in an area of the yard we used for croquet cord. And I mean, it was so bad the dogs wouldn't walk into it. And uh, I put down, well, the fertilized, I put down a maybe half-inch layer of compost in October. Next spring, I think I had three sticker burrs in the entire area. So there are natural pre-emergent things in compost. The humic acids, the fulvic acids, these things serve uh, to really reduce it. And uh, it's a lot more work. It's a lot more money. Um, than just, you know, fertilizing and watering. But I tell you, there's just nothing that will reduce weeds plus improve the quality of your grass more than just a, a thin layer of really good compost. If you could do it in the fall, great. If you can do it fall and spring, even better. Okay, good. Yeah, because that's one thing somebody told me about putting a pre-emergent down. Pre-emergent to me is a waste of time most years. And here's the reason. Contrary to what a lot of people think, Pre-emergents do not kill weed seeds. Pre-emergents uh, <laughs> kill the little seedling as it sprouts and tries to grow. Most of them work by keeping it from forming a root system. The problem is when we're dealing with crabgrass or when we're dealing with sticker burrs, those things can sprout any time from about April on till about early October and still make those damnable seed heads. We call them a real pain in the grass. 
Um, oh, yeah. And so if you were going to rely on a pre-emergent to do the job, you'd have to be, probably have to put it out five times, and that would get pretty expensive and might have other not-so-desirable effects. It's just it doesn't kill the seed. It just stops little seedling from developing a root system, and when that seed is capable of germinating over a long period of time, um, the pre-emergents lose their effectiveness after about four to six weeks. So you're repeatedly going after it. I find just, you know, a good offense uh, does does a much better job for a lot less money. Just good compost. Put some good compost down. Good compost down and, um, uh, you know, uh, good fertilizer to encourage your grass to grow organic, whether it's, Oh, Maestro Grower, Medina, or Nature's Creation. There's several companies make real top yeah, quality fertilizers. Good, yeah, yeah. All right. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate it. Well, good luck with it, Chuck. And I'll I'll hope to hear that uh, if you're down on your knees, you're <laughs> you're giving no. thanks for what you have instead of trying to pull up what you <laughs> want to get rid of. <laughs> no, it it was a good exercise, but. Um, no, I don't want to do that anymore. Yes, sir. Me. Well, I hope I've helped you, and I'll look forward to helping again. So thank you so much. Seems like we started out the last set with four ladies uh, waiting. This time it's all guys. It's going to be Robert and Greg and Lewis and David. Uh, good morning, Robert. Well, good morning. I have a question more about termites. Okay. Subterranean. And um, the the uh, two two guys come out, you know, and... and mm-hmm. uh, they say the one. They said the mulch can be a problem. Um, you know, they asked if I added my new mulch to the old. And I said, sure, do. Just keep on adding on. He said, well, that could be a problem. He said, you really should take out the old. Oh no, that's that's total waste of time and bad information. Termites eat cellulose. Termites break down wood fiber anywhere you've got dead tree roots. Anywhere you've got an old stump. Anywhere you've got a piece of lumber lying on the ground you're you're likely to have termites they're a very normal thing and um you're you're i wouldn't say i will say you can have termites in mulch but you've got termites everywhere anyway and it's not a problem unless that mulch is up against uh not the concrete of your foundation but the wood uh, the thing I'll tell you about termites is that beneficial nematodes kill them just as effectively as um, you know as they kill fleas and grub worms and other things. So if you're concerned about termites in the mulch, you do not need to pay an exterminator. You need do not need to go try to pull your old mulch away. You just need to put out a package of uh, beneficial nematodes every year or so, and it'll be taken care of. Oh, so just put that around the foundation of the house. Yeah, the the problem with subterranean termites, I mean, as the name says, their colony is under the surface of the soil, subterranean, and they come up, they build little tunnels, you know, up and come up into um, whatever to feed on the wood. And around the perimeter of your house, beneficial nematodes will do as much good as anything an exterminator does. Our problems are that many times, and if you're ever building a new home, absolutely demand that when they pour the slab, they actually use a a stainless steel mesh 
they put down wherever they leave an opening in the slab because they leave an opening called a penetration everywhere you're going to have water and sewer pipes and things coming up out of the ground and that's where the termites tend to be a real problem because you and I can't get to them to treat them that's when you really do have to have an exterminator come in to go after them because you can have a slab that's you know 30, 40, 50 feet wide, and if you've got a termite colony under the very center of that slab and they're coming up through, you know, where your where your sewer lines, where your water lines come in, come and go, um, that yet there's just no substitute to having a good pest control company come in to do that. But the termites that are in your yard, that are around the perimeter, that may be around your garage, your workshop, whatever, beneficial nematodes will totally take care of them. Okay. In fact, the, the one company, the, the interesting thing was there is two different methods. One, they were putting down those bait traps, like right. every 8 to 10 feet. Yeah. And the other one said about a trench all the way around the foundation with mm-hmm. chemicals put into the ter- trench and then cover the trench up more chemicals on top. And then that, that, that guy said about coming in and, like you mentioned, all those penetration sites go into those, that say, the bathrooms and the pipes and uh, look at them and, and do things treatments there and then put in this sort of like a window so they can come back on a regular basis and uh you know check those um those pipes and the penetration points coming out of the concrete you know well you know it sounds like they want to sell you a lot of stuff i like the bait sticks so to speak but you have to be careful because the fact that you have put out a bait stick doesn't necessarily mean you have termites in your home. You could put those out, you know, out underneath a tree somewhere, and you'd find termites going into them because those termites are everywhere. They're just, um, they're, they're just ubiquitous. They're just all over the place. But remember, they are only a problem if they are getting into your home. So uh, considering that many of these chemicals they use are highly toxic, I'm not treating if I don't have a problem. Uh, I might, uh, if I do have to treat, and I'm going to use one of the, uh, the bait sticks are as close to organic as we get, and I'm going to use one of the chemical or one of the extermination companies that, that they, they don't call it organic, but they call it, um, oh, chem-free, I think is what they call it, in that they stay away from the really toxic products. But, man, I don't want to live on top of a chemical dump site, which is basically the way a lot of companies treat for termites. Right. That's why I've gotten a lot of... Uh you know, concern on myself mm-hmm. about, uh, well, especially with two different methods being two different, totally sure. different ways of doing it. Yeah. Um, and I, no one has said I actually have them, you know, in the house. <laughs> They're just around the foundation right now. Right, right, which is the most important point of all. I, You know, I know that there are several good companies out there. I think Apple does a chem-free program. I know ABC does a chem-free program. Talk to your company, and um, uh, probably 80% of them don't. Uh, but it's just it's one of those decisions you make, just like what you put down in your yard. Um, I, I, you know, I'm going to make a little note on my 8 o'clock uh, deal and ask Howard Garrett what he, how, he, how he deals with that issue. But uh, I'm, oh, I, I, again, I'm, I'm for careful examination and then reactive 
Um, and if I've got something coming up, of course, I'm on a home that's on a pyramid slab. I can get down underneath the home where I was last week, as a matter of fact, and I can inspect and see if I've got termites. But right. on the on the slab, um, you've got to rely on the experts uh, to determine if you have a problem. And if you don't have a problem, say thank you, come out and inspect again next year, and we'll talk about treatment if there if a problem arises. Well, like right now, let's say about the nematodes. Since it's been so dry, if I just you know uh, wet the the area around the foundation and uh, then apply the nematodes, then that that should help quite a bit. Oh, absolutely! It'll take care of them. But you ought to be doing that whether you're doing nematodes or not. When we get into dry weather, our soils expand and contract, and that's what causes foundation problems. So, if uh, the wise person right now is keeping, you know, on every two or three weeks, they are moistening the area around the perimeter of their slab. You're watering it anyway to protect the slab, so uh, do that whether you're treating for termites or anything else. Yeah. And you can do it. You can buy for, you know, probably for 50 bucks. You can buy enough uh, drip tubing to go all the way around um, around your home, and then it's just a matter of hooking it to the sprinkler or to the hose bib and turning it on every two or three weeks. It it should be a very easy thing for you to do. But um, ask any foundation company, and they will tell you maintaining some moisture around your slab is the most important thing you do in a hot, dry summer. Very good. Okay. Well, thank you again, Bob. Excellent questions, Robert. Thank you for the call this morning, and uh, I will move along here and next talk to Greg. Good morning, Greg. Good morning, Bob. Morning, sir. I have a simple question. I have a simple question for you. I hope it's got a simple answer. <laughs> we'll I find think, out. <laughs> I've got St. Augustine grass in my front yard. Yes, sir. And we have two beautiful live oak trees. Um, and a couple of years ago. The grass stopped growing around the base of the live oak trees, and it's just dirt now, and I can't get the St. Augustine to, to grow in there anymore. It's called shade. Even it Yeah, even, even St. Augustine will not grow in dense shade, and the bigger and thicker and more beautiful your live oaks become, the more problem you're going to have trying to grow grass in that area, and it's... Um, I can't really call it a problem. It's sort of a natural phenomenon. And what you do is either opt for mulch or opt for a bed of shade-loving plants like holly fern and aspidistra and shrimp plant. And I can give you a list of about 20 different things that will thrive in the shade better than your St. Augustine will. If you want something that looks like grass, you plant dwarf monkey grass, dwarf mondo grass in that area. Oh, yeah. And uh, it'll be happy in that deeper shade. Or, you know, you can plant Asian jasmine or various other things. You need to keep it trimmed away from the trunk of your trees, away from the root flare. But you're not looking at a problem. You're looking at uh, the results of having a beautiful oak tree. Well, and I didn't guess that because we have where the rest of the St. Augustine grows in the yard because it's protected from the sun. It's thriving. Oh, yeah. But out near, out near the road... It, where the sun hits it, I, I fight with it every year to keep it alive. Sure, because it's you know with water. So well, and and that was what it was. Yeah, it uh, and you are you so you know accurately saying you're looking at two different things. The more sun it gets, the more water you're going to have to keep it to give it to keep it healthy. But if you could have some sort of light meter that told you 
not how much sunlight is coming down at any one time, which is what your old photographic light meters do, but if you could measure the cumulative amount of sun you have, you're going to find that the closer you get to the trunk of the tree, the less usable wavelength of light you've had over that period, the less has hit the ground there, and that's why your grass is not doing so well around the trunk of the tree. It's um, you know, some people would say, well, I'm just going to thin the top of the tree out. Well, that's not necessarily good for the tree. And when it comes back out, it's going to be twice as thick as before. So, um, everybody gets to this point where they finally give up on having grass way up in the super shady area and switch over to a ground cover. And I think that's where you are. I don't think there's anything wrong with your soil or anything wrong with your grass. I just think your, your trees are creating enough shade toward the trunk that your grass is not doing well, and as you so accurately observe, out around the drip line where it's getting more sun, you got to really work to keep the moisture content up. So welcome to welcome to August in Texas. I know, I know. What were some of the things you said you could put down there? Shrimp something? Well, if, uh, if you're looking at ground covers, um, the three of them that will do, one of them is dwarf mondo grass, which I like very much. Uh, Asiatic jasmine, which long-term is very good, but it takes about three years to thicken up, and you will have to trim it to keep it away from uh, tree trunks. Um, Some people love English ivy. I find that ivy is much worse, uh, English ivy is much worse of a problem growing up the trunks of trees. Uh, It's a little bit more trouble to keep it trimmed back, but considering that there are about 400 different varieties of uh, English ivy, there's some very beautiful ones out there. And um, uh, oh, Howard Garrett uh, has one that is called Persian ivy that I believe is also a different species of the genus Hedra. There, there are a bunch of different ground covers, but then when you start talking about plants, there's holly fern, uh, which is a true fern. There is aspidistra, also known as cast iron plant. Your so-called asparagus ferns, which include asparagus springeri, asparagus myri, which is called foxtail fern, asparagus myriocladus, which they call uh, ming fern. These are not ferns. They're actually asparagus varieties, but they're very pretty things that grow well in the shade. And then if you want things that uh, will give you some flowers, uh, there are things like shrimp plant, plumbago, um Oh, gosh, Turk's Cap is a great native one. American Beautyberry is another native one. These are things that are probably not going to grow all the way up in the dense shade at the tree trunk, but out in the brighter shade, these things will be absolutely gorgeous and a lot less maintenance than grass. Yeah, I've got Turk's Cap, and we love it. Yeah. If you ever buy Shades of Green, uh, we've got a, a free handout we'll give you front and back that lists about 50 different things that will do well in the shade. Love to give you a copy of it. Thanks, Bob. Appreciate it. Have a great day. You do the same, Greg. Thank you, sir. Bye. All right. Let's get straight back to the phone lines. It'll be Lewis and then David. Uh, good morning, Lewis. Good morning, Bob. Got oh. two questions for you this morning. All right, sir. One is about growing cilantro from seed, and the other is clumping onions, the little gumbo onions. My right. lost about half my stand, and I just want to learn what Bob Webster knows about them. <laughs> okay. First of all, on cilantro, grows easily from seed when the soil cools down but you're wasting your time to plant it until about October or so. What I always tell people is when the basil dies, plant the cilantro. When the cilantro dies, plant the basil. Uh, It's a cool weather uh, herb that should produce for Uh you throughout the winter months. May need a little protection if we get uh, just, you know, super cold weather. You might have to cover it a night or two, but uh, 
Um, we're not like California. We can't grow it in the middle of the summer months. So hang on to your seed, and when the soil starts cooling, plant it, and you should be very, very successful. Um, with your multiplying onions, and there's so many different kinds out there, um, fall is the time that you can dig and divide what you already have. If you have lost a portion of them, chances are they got a little too dry at some point. So this is a year that you're probably going to harvest less to eat for yourself, and you're going to just split them up, plant them out over a wider area, and resolve that you're going to be a little bit more regular about your watering and fertilizing. <laughs> and then you'll have a lot more to harvest from next year. Okay. Um, any particular culture of care? Because a lot of folks would tell me you start these little, they're like um, small bulbs that are in a clump, you mm-hmm. know, when the tops die down. That you start them actually in August and September. Have you have you grown any like that? I have, and I have some. Uh, an old friend, uh, excellent surgeon Jesse Delee, gave me some old German ones that just thrive mm-hmm. in my garden. You're going to have to experiment a little bit. Uh, I find the ones they sell as shallots don't really do well here. But uh, ask around your friends if any of them have any of the older varieties. of. Ask for multiplying onions or bunching onions. You may have to go online to get them. I'm not seeing them available for any of the suppliers. But uh, over the next three months is a good time to plant them. And then each year you just dig and divide. Okay. Well, I appreciate the answers, Bob. You have a good day. You do the same, Lewis. Good to talk to you, sir. And we'll finish our up with David. Good morning, David. Morning, sir. How are you? I'm great. How about you today? <laughs> Having a cup of coffee sitting on the back porch. Oh, lucky you. <laughs> I'd be drinking tea, but uh, back porch, this is a time of day to enjoy it. There you go. Two things. Uh, pecan trees around my yard, and I think there's one, I thought they're all kind of native, but one, it's got a, a thousands and thousands of bees. You walk underneath there and just hear a humming, mm-hmm. you know. And they're on the leaves. They're not, you know, uh, forming a nest or anything sure. like that, but they're all in the leaves. And what, right next to it, the other pecan tree has nothing. Well, you've got your one tree is under a little bit of stress, and it's got aphids. And the bees are going after the sugary ex, uh, secre- or excretion that the aphids leave behind. I would check the tree that has all the bees. I very definitely check the base of that tree and be sure the root flare is exposed. But for whatever reason, that tree is a little bit more stressed. It has an infestation of aphids, which are not really going to hurt the tree at this point in the growing season. But uh, to me, it, it, it indicates a stress of some sort, which you need to investigate. But the bees are just there because they're after the sugary stuff that the uh, aphids leave behind. Okay. Uh, we do have, uh, you know, a patio. It's concrete and just rock, uh, gravel. Well, dig around the trunk and expose it to where the air, you know, is is getting down to that root flare. I'm not concerned about your covering up some of the roots, but if you've got even rock or mulch or worse still, weed block fabric or something, you know, um, you know, covering up, you, you need to see the roots flaring out from the side of the trunk. And you need to keep on going down as deep as you need to expose that, even if you end up having to build a little silo to hold the soil back. But as you probably already know by now, this is not the time to talk to me because I'm about to talk to the Dirt Doctor. We'll save approximately the last 30 minutes of the show for more questions and calls. But uh, right now, it's just one of those times in the show that I just really enjoy because I get to talk to a man that knows 
more than I do about a lot of things, and uh, we get to talk about some fun stuff. Good morning, Howard Garrett. Well, good morning. I didn't hear anything there. I, uh, you came in uh, out of the blue there. <laughs> How are you? I'm doing very well. How about yourself today? Well, that's good. We got a little moisture uh, coming out of the air. I don't know that we're going to get a lot, but it's uh, kind of cooled it off a little bit, so we got that going for us. How about the we're just there. we're just hot and dry here. They're telling us that there is a chance, uh, but it's not very high that we'll get some moisture between tonight and tomorrow. And I'll keep my fingers crossed, but um, <laughs> I, I'm not going to put off watering the things that need watering, anticipating that Mother Nature will take care of it. We're we've just been hot and dry. It just went from. As it typically does, we went from having uh, pleasant, moist weather to more typical Texas summer. Well, I'm, I noticed a couple of plants that are native plants that are looking wilted. It's it's amazing how quickly things can change around after having all the huge amount of rain. And then I've got to, I'm going to spend some time today, even if we get a little rain, doing some spot watering where I'm seeing that. Because if you see a a native drought-tolerant plant uh, will, you know that the soil moisture is getting pretty pretty much in trouble. And that's so true, but uh, our, our subsoil layers are drying out. I, I've, I've got cracks in my yard that are just unbelievable. I thought we had yep. more moisture down there, but the combination of, uh, you know, a lot of wind along with uh, much higher temperatures, it... It's amazing how fast it changes, and um, like you say, even the native plants are saying, no, we could use a little more moisture here, please. Yeah, they can stand it, of course, and bounce back, but you're going to have a cosmetic problem if you let it go too far. Yeah, I, I noticed some cracks in the in the ground at the office uh, yesterday, well, the last few days, too, and it's a spot where the sprinkler's not, uh, not covering it as well. Say, so, yeah, I, I ran into something interesting doing a column I wanted to run by you. You do a better job of it than I do in that of using scientific names for plants. <laughs> for when I got started in this business, you know, the people I was around and worked with, they just didn't use scientific names at all. Yeah. And common names were the, you know, the way the plants were sold and all that. And probably partly lazy and partly I just kind of started doing what everybody else was doing and never really got into to that that much. So when I started doing my books, you know, I really had to kind of backtrack and start <laughs> learning a lot of the scientific names, the botanical names. Well, I was writing this column uh, for the Dallas Morning News uh, started on a couple days ago, and I thought I would write about something that I bring up in my speeches all the time, but I didn't think I didn't remember ever doing it as a column, and I don't mm-hmm. think I have. And that is to highlight two of the most important plants that I recommend to everybody for uh, bringing pollinators into the garden. Uh-huh. One of them is uh, almond, almond verbena, and mm-hmm. the other one is uh, white mist flower. Uh-huh. And it's uh, it's real closely kin to that Greg's blue mist flower, you know, but it's a different uh, different species. But here's What's interesting about scientific names for plants, if you look up Greg's mist flower, I just kind of did a double check before I ran, turned this column in. If you do a double check for it, you go to Aggie Horticulture, the white mist flower is listed as Eupatorium rideye, mm-hmm. and then the synonym is Adratina rideye. You go to the uh, 
Wildflower Center in Austin, and I think they're pretty good about you know details and scientific names and so forth. They call it Ageratina havanensis, and synonyms Eupatorium havanensis, <laughs> and synonym Eupatorium texensis <laughs> or texense. So you know your head just kind of starts spinning at this point. Okay, who who should I listen to? Well, here's where it gets even more interesting. The common name. Or white mist flower. And by the way, it is a great plant. If yes, it is. Tried it. It's it's terrific, and it's tough as nails. And I have discovered it growing all over the United States. I ran into it in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania one day when I oh, was wow. running, running around on one of the parks. But anyway, the common names for it include, but are not limited <laughs> to the following, <laughs> white mist flower, white bone set, uh-huh. Fragrant mist flower, shrubby uh, white mist flower, Havana snake root, thoroughwort, <laughs> Wright's bone set, and Wright's azuratina. I think the azuratina uh, name comes from the fact that it uh, looks uh, a lot like uh, azuratum. Exactly. Exactly. Flowers. But it is an absolute magnet, as is uh, the almond verbena for. Uh, pollinators of all kinds. I sent in some pictures of hoverflies, uh, honeybees, the little hair streak butterflies all over the plant at the same time. It's just terrific. The the only negative other than being able to find it in the nurseries and, and the name situation is that it tends to be a fall bloomer. It doesn't bloom all summer long. On the other hand, the almond verbena uh, blooms just you know, all the time. You plant yep. the thing until the hard freezes hit in uh, in the fall. Well, you you bring up two or three interesting things. I didn't learn scientific plant names just because I thought that was a fun thing to do. And you 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 hit exactly why I had to learn them, and that is that here I am buying plants for other people's nurseries originally, yep. and for our own nursery now. And I have to give them the scientific name, or I may get a lot of different things. And, you know, it's just there's sometimes so many, not only so many different common names for the same plant, but there's so many plants with the same common name. And if I go in out and ask for mock orange, I could get Philadelphus, I could get Pittosporum, I could get several different things. And that's why, that's why you know, our, our career paths were just different enough that we had to learn a few different things. But... Uh, it is, and taxonomists, plant taxonomists, are the most boring people in the world with the strangest senses of humor. And, you know, so they they look back, and there are a lot of common plants, like uh, what we call Fatsia japonica. We also call Aurelia cyboldi. Yeah. And this is where two different people identified it, and the rule of taxonomy is the first person to identify and name it that's the name that gets stuck with the plant but if they can't figure out who you know who named it first then you end up with the same plant by two different names the other thing that is funny is you know there as you know the taxonomists some of them are called lumpers some of them called splitters the lumpers want to group more plants together under one genus and even under one uh, species Whereas the splitters, they want to say, oh, no, those are totally different plants. And so they start naming them differently. And the extreme and the kind of things they do, 
a fellow I knew, Carl Wisner, used to be head of the New York Botanical Gardens, and he wanted one of his competitors wanted to create a new species, and he knew that Wisner would say, oh, no, that's not valid. So he named this plant something or other Wisner Eye to honor Carl Wisner, knowing that he would invalidate the name and therefore invalidate himself. Now, that's their idea of humor, and I'm just sort of sitting here scratching my head. But you are right. It is a terrible mess, and uh, I generally... changing the name. Yeah, that's... yeah. I think that's how they justify their existence is uh, is they change the names with some regularity, and uh, I can't keep up with it. I just uh, um, I, I am blessed in that for some reason plant names stick in my head and always have, and I can't remember people's names at all. But, yeah, it is, uh, you know, um, <laughs> but sweet almond verbena is not quite so challenging. I know I think everybody agrees that it's a genus Aloysia, Although, uh, Forgotta, yeah, it, I only ran into that one uh, botanical name on it. So, yeah. yeah, it's just the other end of the spectrum. But I think the, the thing you bring up on the uh, on the white mist flower or whatever, that plant has such a history in, in I won't just say folklore, but folk medicine. And I think that's what has led to a lot of the different names for it, because Early on, and I think your herbalist will still tell you that that plant, if you break a bone, making a salve out of that plant will greatly speed up the healing, and that's where the name bone set, you know, comes from. And I know a lot of uh, a lot of doctors and people today still say it's an incredible healing thing if you've broken a bone, and you know, it doesn't necessarily require a cast, or at the point that you take the cast off. You can really increase the healing by using that particular plant, and so I like the name Boneset because it tells me tells me something about the plant as well as the fact. But yeah, um, back to the original the point. Those are two great pollinator attractors. Oh yeah, terrific. The only thing about the Boneset name is that that's also a common name used for comfrey. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> anyway, well, my next uh, I may do it. For my next column, I may wait a little while, do, do some other kind of a subject. But uh, uh, related to that, in a way, is flame leaf sumac. Somebody, uh, we have a uh, helper that's helping us with our website mm-hmm. right now uh, that's a ground crew member, Maggie uh, Dwyer, doing a great job on uh, helping us with the website and the newsletter and stuff. And she mentioned to me that... Uh, Flame sumac had come up and been mentioned a couple of times, once by me and once by one of the listeners or something, and mm-hmm. she noticed that we didn't have a, an entry for it on DirtDoctor.com, so I started writing an entry for it, and I've got it in some of my plant books, but I ran into something real quick on it, and that is, is it the same plant as prairie sumac? And I've got it, and other books have it, listed as two different plants so i'm going to be looking into that next you wouldn't happen to know offhand would you i think that um the taxonomists give them both the same genus and species but different varietal names but it's been a while since i looked that one up so i may be totally wrong there but uh um i i think they consider them it's just, you know, is it different enough to make it two different species? Um, I think most people now say that one is just a variety of the other, and they pretty much use them interchangeably. My 
my experience is that what we call flame leaf sumac grows bigger, grows taller, can actually become quite tree-like, whereas the prairie sumac I've always seen is more of a shrubby plant. But, again, um, your experience is probably wider than mine. Maybe like the difference between Texas ash and white ash mm-hmm. or the difference in uh, some of the red oaks. Yep. Well, there's a beautiful one uh, right across the street, and it's, it's the one I have in uh, my book, at least one of my books, and maybe two of them. And it has the most gorgeous red fall color you've oh, yeah. ever seen. In fact, that's where I mentioned it, and Maggie picked up on it uh-huh. when I was writing the negative article about uh, Chinese pistache and right. the, the females spreading and everything. And I mentioned it as a uh, substitute, as an alternative. Of course, it wouldn't get as big, but mm-hmm. uh, has very similar texture and as good or better fall color. I totally agree. The one thing about flame sumac is that it does seem to spread you know, through underground runners, and it can actually, I guess if you took good enough care of it, some people would consider it invasive invasive because it does make a nice little mott. But I absolutely love it because it's just resistant to virtually every problem out there, and like you say, it's some of the best native color we have. Well, you may have just come up with a clue on what the difference, if there is, and I've seen difference in species names Uh uh, in my early research here. The one across the street does not spread. Mm-hmm. It's a single stem and just as clean as a whistle underneath it. So that there may be um, a difference in uh, the two when they look very much alike yeah. as far as the foliage goes. You know, anyway, interesting questions. It's it, it's kind of like, and, and again, I hope this is a fall I'm going to be able to do it. Maybe we can even offer some of it uh through the uh, Organic Club of America, but uh, our uh, sweet almond verbena is much more cold-hardy than the one that's commonly in cultivation. Uh, You've mentioned that. That could be a really important thing. Uh, I mentioned in the column that I normally treat mine as a perennial and Mm -hmm. cut it to the ground because it gets pretty ugly in the winter. But some years, even... Here in Dallas, it's made it through as a as an evergreen. So, is ours a different species, or is it a different variety, or is it just a different cultivar? We'll, we'll have to ask the taxonomist to get an answer to that one. I tell you something interesting related to that real quickly uh, too is that when you have a perennial like that that dies to the ground, and you cut it back, mm-hmm. it can over a period of years, not too many years end up being too deep in the ground. It's kind of an interesting hmm. thing because those shoots will get started just a little bit lower than the top that died, and it's it's kind of interesting. You've got to kind of keep an eye on that that you don't end up having a buried plant. That's a real interesting observation, and, yeah, it would be so true. Plants are interesting. Oh, they are. A couple of things that uh, I wanted to mention to you that you may or may not be aware of is, uh, well, the first one, uh, uh, it was, this was in Science News, which is, uh, you know, a, just a condensed version of the magazine Science, which is pretty restricted, uh, pretty respected peer reviewed uh, magazine. But uh, they are pointing out, and they don't put it in these terms, but I'll, I'll change it, is that we need to bear in mind that there is a big difference between compostable and organic because a lot of people are making a big deal about a lot of these new food containers and even some of the utensils, utensils and things are compostable uh, and making it a big deal that you know this makes them so much more recyclable and so good for the environment and things like that. 
But uh, this was pointing out that a lot of these compostable food containers actually contain some not-so-good chemicals they call PFAS, which I'll never remember this, but it's polyfluoroalkyl substances. And these things, if people put them into the compost pile and then use that compost in the garden, uh, they may actually be taken up by the vegetables, and they don't really know if they have any effect on people or not. So people with a home compost pile, you might send it off to the city's composting things, but don't put this stuff in your own compost pile because you... Uh, it's definitely not organic, and you may end up with some things that have the potential to be uh, be negative. How do you tell the difference? Are they, do they have to be labeled differently? I guess they would have to be, um, but uh, just just the whole point is just because it's compostable doesn't mean it's organic. And uh, this article makes the point... Um, Oh, it says in here somewhere, microbes usually help break down chemicals, but for this persistent bunch, these things that they call the PFAs, it says that they, uh, the microorganisms typically transform them into other PFAs. And so while they break them down structurally, they don't actually degrade that, that chemical compound that, that might potentially be a cause for concern. Yeah, the metabolites as it breaks down can yeah. be uh, toxic as, as well. Well, but, I tell everybody on composting that you can compost anything. Oh, yeah. Uh, up to and including you know, nuclear waste, but the problem is just how long it takes and how recalcitrant, <laughs> you know, how resistant it is to that. And then, like you're saying, uh, the, these metabolites, as it breaks down, can even be more dangerous than the original compound. Right. Well, their comment on the, the use of this, they sell, say that the reason the companies making the things put them in is because they help repel water and repel oil. So I don't know if that gives us any hint as to which ones we really need to watch out for, but just uh, I just thought it was a real interesting point because I think a lot of people make the mistake of, assuming that if something's compostable, it's going to be acceptable in an organic program, but that, that may not be the case in these things. Yeah, that's a complicated little deal because some people could even argue that plastic is compostable. You know, but it's, it's just like it's showing up in the oceans now, these tiny, tiny particles of it or what they're, they've discovered now, and, and it's all over the place in the ocean. Yeah. Yeah. More dangerous than the bigger stuff by quite a way. On on another front, which I'm sure will upset <laughs> our chemical opponents, uh, but uh, visiting with our good arborist friends, they are finding, uh, and you're well aware of hypoxylin canker because it's you know one of the most common diseases of trees, and most arborists uh, will say, oh, there's nothing you can do about it. But uh, we're finding that uh, the cornmeal treatment is as effective at uh, stopping hypoxylin as it is at stopping oak wilt. And uh, David Vaughn was telling me that he is uh, his oldest specimen of a red oak that was suffering from hypoxylin is nine years out since he treated it with cornmeal and that there's zero sign of hypoxylin canker left in it. And he's treated several additional trees with very good success uh, in, in 100% of the cases that the trichoderma growing on the cornmeal really does eliminate or at least greatly discourage the hypoxylin. He said the one thing we have to keep in mind is that hypoxylin, unlike oak wilt, reduces the structural integrity of a tree, and a tree with hypoxylin may be more 
susceptible to storm damage, but I just thought it was very interesting that this so-called incurable disease, it turns out the cornmeal treatment will work on it as well. Yeah, well, I've got a little bit different take on it, and we probably ought to get together and talk about it. I've always told people that hypoxin canker is not a, a causal thing mm-hmm. at all. It's a result. Right. And it's a result of uh, the tree being in stress. So doing the cornmeal, and I'm sure that he's doing the sick tree treatment or some version yep, of it, exactly. too, by getting the flare uncovered and stuff like that, you're removing what caused the hypoxin canker to come there. One thing I tell people, too, if you, when you walk around in the forest, you can look at some of the lower limbs, mm-hmm. and you can see on an absolutely perfectly healthy tree, hypoxin canker on a lower limb right. that has died or is in the process of dying because it's being shaded out. You know, it's being stressed and, and taken out by the tree. So. And it doesn't spread and doesn't cause any further problems no, in that situation. No, no, no. Once that limb's gone, it's 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 over with. Yeah. Well, I you're totally right on that. I just I just think people need to be aware if they have a less knowledgeable arborist or tree person or whoever come in and say, "Oh, hypoxal and canker, we got to yank this tree out. It's never going to do anything." That the sick tree treatment, including the cornmeal, has the potential if it's not spread too far, where the tree's a you know a hazard if it falls. That it is very definitely treatable. There's no reason to cut it down or go with any super expensive uh, treatments that they want to recommend. I think any disease in a plant is treatable unless it has just gone past the point of no return. You know, it's like that airplane taking off. If the root system is already too far gone and, yep. and already dead, you know, you're not going to be able to bring a plant back to life. But if it still has plenty of life in it, I don't care what the disease is. I think you can turn it around. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree. One other thing I wanted to ask, um, we've got the Texas Nursery Association show coming up here in San Antonio, which to me it's just discouraging how far down that organization has gone. But you and I have talked about uh, a number of you know new products that aren't aren't widely available. Now we were talking about Cinderite last week and some of the new uh, herbicides and all. Do you know if any of the manufacturers of those are planning to be at this show? And if so, if there's anybody we need to pay particular attention to, because we'll go at least walk through it. But uh, wondered I if you don't know, and I doubt it because yeah. we've never encouraged it. Yeah. Uh, there's just there's just so little interest by that group in the <laughs> natural organic approach, like you say. Yeah, I'll check on it and let you know if so. When is that coming up? I believe it's next weekend. Okay. It's uh, I I'm pretty sure it's Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or something like that. I've got to dig it out and look. We. We, we go through and just walk through and get to see some of our shrub and tree suppliers and all. But we find more in products. We find more at the Far West Show in Portland than we do in Texas, which is a very sad commentary. But it comes down to the fact that uh, some other folks do their shows trying to support the industry. Uh, the TNLA people are just doing it to try to make money out of the deal, and so they've driven out. So many of the of the people that might otherwise be there, plus they're just so anti-organic in everything they do that, like you say, those people aren't interested in coming. But uh, uh, it'd be interesting to know. And we also have the trade show coming up that uh, I know BWI and Adams both put on their own little trade shows. Uh, we go more to Adams because they carry a whole lot more organic products than uh, than BWI does. But uh, you might you might ask uh, among the people making 
new products that we're interested in promoting, if any of them are going to be at the Adams Show, because I'll go up to that. Uh, it's just up the road in San Marcos, and I'd love to be able to uh, tell more people about more more of these good products that are coming online. Yeah, Doug's out of town, but I'm talking to him because we're working on getting the newsletter out and everything. I'll ask him if he knows any of uh, uh, these new uh, product lines are going to be represented, at, and I'll, I'll get it get the information to you. Well, very good. Well, I want to talk about termites sometime too, but that'll be a fun thing for us to uh, uh, maybe to talk about next week or something. There's so many different opinions and. And I'm of the opinion that rarely are they a serious problem, but uh, I look forward to getting your take on it when uh, when we have a little bit more time to yeah, talk. But I kind of agree with that. Unless you've got some big problem, a leak or something, that's yeah. easy to kill with uh, the natural organic techniques. Absolutely. Well, everything else good in your world other than uh, being a little dry, but maybe you're getting a little bit of moisture to help uh, take care of that problem. It, it, we have not been unusually hot. It's it's you feel the heat here, but I think about this time last year, it seems like we were pushing 107, 108 degrees. So uh, compared to the 96 or 97 we're experiencing now, this is not a really hot summer, but you still feel the heat. That's for sure. Yeah, the humidity in with it makes it feel awfully uh, hot, and even hotter to me than last year. But yeah, the temperatures were quite a bit uh, warmer last year and we've had a little cooling uh, the last few days we got we're getting a little bit of rain right now it's not much but it's a light sprinkle outside so. well you know if at least if you got cloud cover it's not gonna not gonna warm up as rapidly but uh you were mentioned last week you were going to spend some time outside and i hope that all went well this week yeah I, it's funny when you get out and start cutting uh little volunteer trees and dead stuff out of the uh, garden and you have two places like i do when i'm almost an acre right it's amazing how much work that is <laughs> uh, i haven't finished yet i got more of that to do today well as i always say one thing about my life i am never bored i seems like every time i scratch something off the top of my list i add two more things to the bottom but uh I love my little sign that says, uh, the good Lord put me on this earth to accomplish a certain number of things. Right now, I'm so far behind, I'll never die. <laughs> well, I've done some more art, too. Doug's put a few of the newer pieces I've done on the uh, on the website, so check it out. If anybody's interested in donating to uh, the Texas Organic Research Center, that's a good way to do it, either with the... Uh, or the books are joint, or do the class, the online class. Mm-hmm. And we got two classes now. One is for the hemp uh, situation, which has more support that comes along with it. So we appreciate everybody's help. Enjoy being with you as always, and we'll do it again next week. Well, enjoy your first weekend of August, and uh, sure look forward to next Saturday, Howard. Thank you so much. Thanks, Bob. Certainly. <laughs> Goodbye. Mr. Howard Garrett is the Dirt Doctor. His website, dirtdoctor.com, is by far the best source on the Internet for um, information that is both timely and applicable here in South Texas. So much of what you're going to find on the website is not applicable, or on uh, most websites is not applicable, but I think just about everything on dirtdoctor.com is just as applicable in San Antonio as it is in Dallas, where uh, Howard is based. So, hope you check out dirtdoctor.com. Hope you join uh, the members-only site. It's only like 25 bucks a year. I 
just uh, have them take it out of my credit card on the appropriate time. But it does give you access to even more videos and even more interesting things. So uh, anyway, check it out, DirtDoctor.com. All right, looks like we're going to be talking to Steve and Mimi and Jimmy. And Steve is up first. Good morning, Steve. Good morning. How are you, Bob? I'm well, sir. Looking forward to a the nice first Saturday of uh, of August. Yeah, thank God we're not up in the Northeast. It's just too wet and too cold. <laughs> we, could that's, hey, we could use a little bit of rain, but that's not the only reason I'm glad we're not up in the Northeast. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that. We, we won't even go into there. You're right. Uh, got a question or a couple of questions. I live uh, off of 1604 and Highway 90 close to Casterville, okay, uh-huh. and uh, in a subdivision, and I want to take up the Bermuda grass they planted because it's terrible, and I want to put it in St. Augustine. Okay. And I kind of wanted, uh, maybe you could tell me what kind of St. Augustine, I know, I know there's different types. Sure. And what time of year to do this. Uh, any any Anything you can help me with, I'd appreciate. Well, let's first of all, let me ask uh, if this area is full sun or shade that you want to make this conversion. Uh, part of it is full sun, and uh, I've got a couple of trees in the front yard, so that's a, it's a little shady, but okay. it, it does get a lot of sun. Okay. Well, the, the area which is absolute full sun, in my opinion, by far the best St. Augustine is one called Floratam, F-L-O-R-A-T-A-M. Not too imaginative. Okay. It was developed jointly by the University of Florida and Texas A&M, which is where Floratam comes from. And it is okay. more drought-tolerant than other St. Augustines. It is more sun-tolerant. It was really developed with coastal areas in mind, which they are where they have an issue with chinch bugs. Uh, it's very resistant to chinch bugs. Those are rarely a problem up here. So for your sunny area, I'll definitely suggest Floratam. Shadier areas, it's not going to do as well. Um, I okay. usually recommend a variety called Palmetto. Uh, there's another one called Delmar. Those are my two favorite varieties for shaded areas, or Palmetto and Delmar, St. Augustine. And okay. here, here's the thing about St. Augustine. It is in When it is happy, it is a stronger, tougher grass than Bermuda, and it will ch- choke out Bermuda. Um, it does require watering. It doesn't take any more water to keep um, to keep it looking nice. Uh, it doesn't take any more to keep St. Augustine looking nice than it takes to keep Bermuda looking nice. But the difference is if you stop watering, St. Augustine dies. Bermuda just browns out. And in drought conditions, Bermuda is going to be a stronger grass. But where you can give it adequate nutrition um, the St. Augustine is going to choke out the Bermuda on its own. So I, I would tend to tell you, I would certainly wait and I would do one of two things. If you're going to do it in small chunks, which is probably advisable, you can start doing it any time, provided that you can water it. It will be easier to get your new grass established in the fall when it cools off just a little bit. But uh um again that is totally up to you if you're going to do the whole thing all at one time very definitely wait until fall to do it but what i'm going to do is just scalp that bermuda i'm just going to cut it down as close to ground level as possible and come in with my new saint augustine on top of it i'm going to roll it i'm going to water it uh because you'll never dig up all your bermuda grass your bermuda grass has underground runners you could go in there with a sod cutter you could pull it up but you're still going to have it come back to some extent so 
I'm just not going to go to that much work and effort. Um, okay. Should, should I till the, the soil after I cut it down, or would that help any? It would probably make it a little easier for your new St. Augustine to put down roots. But if I were going to do it, I would do it very, very lightly. If you till it deeply, you're going to soften the soil to the problem that you're going to have trouble getting it level when you put your new grass in. It's going to not settle evenly. So uh, that's up to you. But if you want to do a very shallow, like one-inch deep tilling, kind of like going over something with a disc harrow as opposed to going over it with a real root plow, uh, you can do that, but that is strictly up to you. The thing to remember is it's very important to roll your new grass, not to take, not to try to level it, but what you're doing is pressing out any air pockets between your new grass and the soil okay. underneath. Okay. Uh, compost would be a good idea after you put your new grass in, but never put compost under new grass because your new grass needs lots of oxygen to grow roots. Compost produces lots of carbon dioxide, so um, it's a real mistake. Okay. Some people compost down, put grass on top, and that's a bad idea. If you want to put some organic fertilizer down first, you can certainly do that, whether it's Nature's Creation or Medina or whichever one you choose. Um, everybody always says, oh, you have to wait to put down fertilizer till your grass is established. That's for back in the days when everybody used the synthetic chemical fertilizers that would really would burn. They call it burning. It's actually just causing it to dehydrate. But with organic fertilizer, sure, I'd put some of it down for you and put the new grass on top of it. But um, realize that with your new grass, it's going to have to be watered initially probably twice a day in the heat, once a day if you wait till fall. But it's going to take a, a very regular watering schedule uh, to get it established. As it starts forming roots, you just begin to back off on the water. And um, if this is an area with a good irrigation system, you can do the whole thing at one time. If you don't have a good irrigation system out there, I'd be doing it in manageable size bites, so to speak. I'm going to pick this area. I'm going to put my new grass in. I'm going to get it started. Then I'm going to move over and do the adjoining area. So that that's kind of your choice to make as to how much time, how okay. much water you have to put into it. Okay. So the, the full sun is Floritam, and the partial sun would be uh, Palmetto, and you mentioned one other one. The other one is Del Mar, D-E-L-M-A-R. Del Mar. Uh, them are good. I would go with whichever one you can find. Let me ask you, I, someone mentioned Raleigh. Is that not... Stay available? away from it. Stay away from it. Okay. It is very much more brown patch susceptible. Uh, it is resistant to St. Augustine decline, which is not, it's a virus disease, which is not a problem in a healthy yard. And uh, brown patch is much more of an issue than St. Augustine decline. So I stay away from Raleigh because it is so brown patch susceptible. Okay. Thank you very, very much for your information. If this helps me make my decisions. And, uh, well, are, are these grasses available locally in the San Antonio area? They are. Um, there is no perfect grass producer out there. I find that as far as quality grass, uh, Thomas Stone and Landscape has some of the better grass that I've seen lately, but, uh, okay. inspect it. Don't, uh, you know, don't accept it if it's not good. Don't ever look at the top piece of grass. Look two or three layers down. Stick your hand in. If it feels hot and clammy, it's been uh, stacked for too long. That's the thing about laying new sod is uh, it has to go down immediately. It cannot remain stacked uh, or it goes downhill in a big hurry. 
So get a case of beer and line up every friend you've got. So <laughs> make a party out of it. But uh, uh, again, if you're doing it yourself, don't don't get more than two or three pallets at a time because that's as much as you're going to want to lay down and roll in a given day. Okay, and that's Thomas. Uh Thomas Stone and Landscape. Ask for Bill Thomas up there. Tell them what you're looking for. They they have an outlet at the near the corner of Redland Road in 1604. Their main location oh, okay. is up in Bull Verde, and uh, okay. I suspect they can deliver. But uh, I, I'm not going to tell you they're perfect 100% of the time, but they're perfect uh, a whole lot higher percentage than some of the big-name guys out there, and we'll just leave it at that. Thanks for the heads up. Appreciate your help and enjoy your show. Thank I you. appreciate it, Steve. Thank you. God bless you. Take care. Thank you, sir. Bye. Ah, oh, we've still got a couple of plant topics to discuss, and that's going to be with uh, Mimi and with Jimmy. So let's do that right now. Good morning, Mimi. Good morning, Bob. Good morning. And this is Minnie. Oh, Minnie. Okay, very good. And I have two questions. First is my German irises. When uh-huh. they were done blooming, I kind of neglected them, and I didn't cut them down. I didn't bu- put blood meal around them. Is it too late to do that? Well, there's no reason to cut them down, and you will weaken the plants if you do so. Oh, um, okay. So I'm glad you didn't cut them down. Now, if you cut the old bloom stalks off, that's fine. Uh-huh. But they need those big old wide leaves to collect the sun's energy and store the nutrients for the next round of growth and blooming. Um, as far as blood meal, I'm not crazy about blood meal. I mean, it's good for repelling rodents. Mm-hmm. It is a good fertilizer in that it has nitrogen in it, mm-hmm. but uh, I, I would very definitely like to see you fertilize them, but I would go with a more balanced product like you're going to get from uh, Nature's Creation or Medina or Maestro Grow or any of the good organic mm-hmm. companies, and mm-hmm. it's never too late to do that. We can do that 365 days a year, so uh, stop beating yourself up. You you oh, didn't neglect good. anything except perhaps your fertilizing, and you can take care of that this afternoon. But well, uh, Actually, I put the rose glow down. Oh, that's fine. That's fine. Okay. You're set for a couple of months. Okay. Just remember to water. German iris is drought-tolerant but it will certainly grow better. And mm-hmm. um, if you've got the old-fashioned iris, you're, you're through with them for the season. But if you mm-hmm. plant any more German iris, be sure to ask for one of the reblooming varieties because mm-hmm. there are varieties now that will bloom three and four times a summer instead of mm-hmm. just once. Yeah, I have the ones who only bloom in the spring. Right. Well, at this oh. point, all you need to do is water. And this fall, if you feel like you need to... Uh, dig or divide or anything like that Mm -hmm. uh you can certainly do so but uh um not not necessary to do anything right now except uh sit back and find something else to put your efforts into (laughs) (laughs) all right well that's good to know because i really did worry about my irises thinking oh they're not going to do well next thing okay no they're just fine the second question i have i have Four roses of Sharon. Three uh-huh. are doing wonderful, and they are in different areas of the yard. And okay. one, my favorite, actually, is getting yellow leaves. Actually, has yellow leaves. It, what happened? It has probably dried out. Uh, Althea's uh-huh. rose of Sharon, Hibiscus syriacus, is their proper name, which tells you they are truly a hibiscus. And um, so they, 
if they get too dry, they will shed yellow leaves for a while, but this is not a permanent situation. A good okay. thorough watering with a little uh, Super Thrive, a little Garrett juice in it, uh, mm-hmm. that they should come back out. You know they're all going to drop their leaves in the fall anyway, yeah. so mm-hmm. I suspect this one just may get a little bit more sun and for whatever reason dry it out a little bit more, mm-hmm. but uh, uh, it's not a bad thing. They they sometimes get a root-rotting disease, but the symptoms of that is just the whole plant going droopy. I think mm-hmm. you just, one got a little drier, and you need to water it a little okay. bit more. So would you plant them in the shade or in the sun um full sun if you want the best flowering full sun okay mine only get part sun and part shade well if they bloom satisfactorily for you Mm -hmm. that's okay Mm -hmm. but if you want more flowers this fall when it cools out move them out Mm -hmm. to the uh, brighter sunlight and they'll do better okay well, those were my questions. Well, always, I appreciate the so call, Minnie. We will talk again, and I will get Jimmy in here. Good morning, Jimmy. Good morning, sir, Bob. Uh, I have a, I have a question, real quick. Okay. I have two I have two uh, Monterey oak trees. Uh-huh. Uh huh. That, that I planted at the same time. One is taller than the other. Can I go ahead and trim the branches on one to uh, to make them level? To make them, you know, look look uh, even. Is it okay? You can uh, I, I, you can do that. I would hesitate yes. to do it after just one season because that second tree may very well catch up with the first tree. Some trees just spend a little more time growing roots before they take off. I would check both trees to be sure that their root flares are exposed. So if you yes. want to do some light pruning, that's not going to hurt anything. But I sure wouldn't do any major pruning because... Every leaf on that tree is contributing to that tree's health and making the tree grow faster. So you want to give it a little haircut, that's fine, but let's don't do a major change uh, in the whole tree. Okay. The other question is real quick. is I planted them uh, 20 feet apart. Uh-huh. Will the, will the branches more or less kind of meet together? Yeah. Or, yeah. Or that's fine. They're going to meet. They're going to create... Uh, um, just a, a nice big area of shade. I think he did just fine at 20 feet apart. All right, sir. That, that's it. I guess my time's up. Well, Jimmy, I appreciate it.